is Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett led an elite group of scientists into the desert to develop a top-secret project known as Quantum Leap. Pressured to prove his theories or lose funding, Dr. Beckett prematurely stepped into the project accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself in the past, suffering from partial amnesia and facing a mirror image that was not his own. Fortunately, contact with his own time was maintained through brainwave transmissions with Al, the Project Observer, who appeared in the form of a hologram that only Dr. Beckett can see in here. Trapped in the past, Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, putting things right that once went wrong and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 29, Seabride. Quantum leaping always leaves me with an unsteady feeling, but this is ridiculous. true but if it wasn't true why didn't you come home then get your dukes up i really think that there's been some mistake here oh well, not yet but there's going to be if you only don't if stop you try and Catherine stop Catherine from, from marrying vincent the viper vinnie the viper according to ziggy there's an 88.3 percent probability that you are here to prevent this wedding from taking place well ziggy's wrong Originally, Philip was unable to stop the wedding, so he committed suicide. Catherine could never get over it, so two years later she died of a broken heart. Anyway, he was talking to that henchman he calls a best man, and he told him if you step one foot near Kate... That's short for Catherine. He's going to chop you up into little tiny pieces and feed you to the fish. That little waltz may have just cost you your life. Look, I don't want to shoot you. Good. I'm going to marry Catherine tomorrow, and I don't want you getting her all confused with a lot of stuff from the past. I can appreciate that, and I'm sure you can appreciate that. I just want to make sure that she's not confused about the present. No, it's just too late. Only if you let it be. I don't love you anymore, Philip. I can't afford to. Catherine, you have a second chance at happiness. Don't let it sail away again. Welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. We have a great show for you today. We have an amazing interview with James Harper, who played Vincent Loja, Vinny the Viper. He's got some eyelashes. Right? Very gorgeous eyelashes. And we also have an interview with Beverly Leach. Some of you may have heard it before, but we're going to include it here because it's perfect for this episode. And I can finally listen to it. Yay. Woohoo. Yeah, that was a great one. And that's not all. We have a third interview with John Hertzler, who played Weathers Farrington. With interviews from three different people that were a part of making Seabride, we should have a really good understanding about the whole creative process. So that's very exciting. And that's coming up later in the show. So Heather, 
What did you think about Seabride? I liked it. I It was weird because I really had no idea what to expect. And I thought it was going to be more of a historical episode where he was going to help change something in history. Like it was going to be something on Titanic or it was going to be him saving the ship from sinking or something more monumental. And and not that it wasn't a bad story, but I really didn't know it was going to be like a love story episode, which I really liked it. And I and I did like the undertones of comedy throughout the whole episode. I really liked this episode. I could tell it wasn't Titanic right away because it was only three smokestacks instead of four. And then when he looked out the window, he saw the Statue of Liberty and Titanic never made it to New York. Oh, I just meant when when he leaped in and um, like before I saw the episode and that it was on a boat. That's I, but you know what I mean? I thought it was going to be something like he was going to change something in history. I'm on a boat. Yo. <laughs> I don't want to say if I liked it or not right away, but I loved it. Yeah. It was, it was awesome. I think it was a perfectly written episode. It was a great like romantic comedy. It was almost like those older movies that are just perfectly written and perfectly acted and the timing is great and the whole thing is just funny. It brings up memories of things like maybe Some Like It Hot or other movies of that era where it's just funny and fun to watch the whole time. And like this episode could be a play or a movie. Like if there was a couple scenes that weren't really left out, it could have been a movie. I agree. And I really liked all the actors in this episode. I think everybody did a great job. Not that they don't every episode of Quantum Leap, but I really liked Jenny, played by Juliet Sorcy. I think that she was an amazing actress. And the casting was really good in this episode, too. If you look at the shot of the two sisters talking right before the wedding, you can see their profiles are so similar. I didn't see it until that moment, but even watching it back, I'm like, wow, they did really good at casting this episode. And she could act, so that really makes a difference. Oh, yeah. And I love the relationship that she and Philip had. It was a really good story. It was a great story. Great episode. Really, really good. So you liked it? I liked it. <laughs> I loved it. I really did. It didn't get old for me. I watched it, what, six times at least in this uh, past week or so. And uh, yeah, I laughed every time. It's still funny. I laugh too, and I, I've now gotten to the point where I'm starting to quote the episode. <laughs> I don't think I've seen it as much as you, because you started watching it before I did. But I've watched it enough to know what lines are coming next, so. I think that's an indication that you like it too. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I didn't I didn't get tired of it. There weren't any um, ballads that you were singing over and over in this episode. Oh, I kind of hummed Hernando's Hideaway a little bit, which was the song they tangoed too. Oh. This episode got a 7.5 out of 10 on IMDb. Out of 118 votes. I feel like it should be higher. Me too, right? It's a good 9.5. I liked that Sam got to be like a goofy character. Not goofy, but like suave and kind of funny. And he had little quirky lines. And he was always one-upping Vinny the Viper. And it was just funny correcting his misquotes. And <laughs> it, it was fun. it was really good. Like him, when he, after he danced, he went over the chair. and Oh, it, that was awesome. Yeah. And... I liked that Sam got to kind of be his... It seemed like it was a lot of himself shining through. Could you tell this was a Deborah Pratt episode? Maybe that's why I liked it so much. <laughs> <laughs> she She's a good writer. I'll yeah. Give her that. All right. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about that and many other things that we love about this episode after the episode recap. This is season two, episode 21, Seabride. Original broadcast date, May 2nd, 1990. Written by Deborah Pratt, 
and directed by Joe Napolitano. It's June 3rd, 1954, and Sam has leaped into Philip Dumont aboard the RMS Queen Mary, leaving New York. No sooner has he adjusted to the feeling of being on the water than a woman wearing a wedding dress enters the room and kisses him. Then, just as suddenly, she slaps him across the face and asks him what he's doing here. The woman, Catherine Farrington, tells Sam that she thought he was dead after becoming lost at sea and is upset that he didn't come home. She insists that she is over him and that he can't stop her from marrying Vincent tomorrow. As Catherine is about to leave, someone knocks on Sam's door and demands to be let in. Recognizing her father's voice, Catherine hides in the closet. Sam lets in Weathers, Catherine's father, and Weathers angrily tells Sam that he shouldn't have shown up to Catherine's wedding after refusing to take a job with the Farrington family cruise business and leaving Catherine three years ago. He warns Sam to stay away from his family and punches him to emphasize the point. Al arrives and tells Sam that he has to stop Catherine from marrying Vincent, or as Al calls him, Vinny the Viper. Sam promises to Weathers that he will not interfere with the wedding. After Weathers leaves, Al insists to Sam that Philip and Catherine were in love with each other before Philip was lost at sea. But Weathers convinced Catherine that Philip was dead and had their marriage annulled. Another knock sounds and Sam realizes that Catherine is still in the closet. He lets her out and she asks him again why he's there. Al tells Sam that Philip committed suicide after failing to stop the wedding and a broken-hearted Catherine died two years later. Catherine tells Sam that if he still loves her, he should jump off the ship and swim back to New York. After Catherine leaves, Al says that maybe jumping off the ship is exactly what Philip did. Sam is unconvinced, but Al tells him that what Philip and Catherine have is true love, which only happens once in a lifetime. Sam asks Al what he would know about true love, bringing up his numerous marriages. Al responds that he found true love with a woman once and married her. Sam asks why they aren't married still, but Al shrugs off the subject. He tells Sam that helping Philip and Catherine is what's important right now. Another knock sounds, and a young girl wearing a dark hat, glasses, and trench coat comes in. She tells Sam that everything is going according to plan, and Catherine is feeling confused and miserable. Al guesses that this is Catherine's little sister, Jennifer. Jennifer tells Sam that she overheard Vincent threatening to cut him up into little pieces and feed him to the fish if he comes near Catherine. Al wonders if Philip's death was a suicide after all. Jennifer begs for Sam to talk to Catherine, and Sam agrees. Later, Catherine is refusing to come out of her bedroom. Weathers passes it off to Vincent as pre-wedding jitters. Vincent asks Catherine to come out and join them, but soon turns angry, pounding on the door and yelling at her to come out. He tells Weathers to have his wife and daughters ready for dinner in seven minutes and leaves. Catherine comes out and tells her father that she can't go through with the wedding. Weathers confesses to Catherine that the family business is in financial trouble, and Vincent has offered to buy them out. He tells Catherine that she'll learn to love Vincent, and she'll always have her family. Feeling reassured, Catherine agrees to get ready for dinner, though Weathers seems conflicted after she leaves. After dinner, Sam is telling Al that although Jennifer has given him a key to the first-class pool so that he and Catherine can have some alone time, Catherine is still refusing to talk to him. Al has an idea and suggests a way that Sam and Catherine can be in a room full of people and still have an intimate moment. 
Sam finds Catherine in the ship's ballroom, where the guests are being entertained by a live band. He requests a tango to be played, and whisks a stunned Catherine onto the dance floor. As the two of them dance together, and Vincent watches in anger, Sam asks Catherine to meet her at the pool at midnight, and promises that if she still wants him to leave her alone after that, he will. The dance ends, and Catherine agrees to meet him. As Sam leaves, he is intercepted and escorted outside by Victor and his bodyguard. Vincent warns Sam that he doesn't want him getting Catherine confused before the wedding, and threatens to kill him if he doesn't stay away from Catherine and her family. Sam spots the ship's captain nearby and manages to get himself out of trouble by requesting a tour of the ship. The captain agrees and the two of them leave Vincent and his bodyguard behind. When Sam is safely away, he tells the captain that Vincent is threatening to kill him. Using information that Al has given him, Sam explains to the dubious captain that Vincent is a convicted felon and the New York police can confirm his criminal record. Later, Sam is searching through Philip's luggage for a pair of swimming trunks. Al angrily tells Sam that right now, in a room at the bottom of the ship, large amounts of garbage are being pushed out into the ocean. Jennifer enters the room and quickly finds Sam a pair of trunks. She tells him he should be at the pool when Catherine arrives, then heads back so she can cover Catherine's exit. Catherine has changed into her swimsuit, but is still nervous and uncertain about meeting with Sam. Jennifer assures her that all she has to do is listen to what Sam has to say. Catherine is convinced and leaves. She heads to the pool, unaware that she is being followed by Vincent's bodyguard. Catherine finds Sam at the pool, which unbeknownst to them had been emptied an hour earlier. Unable to swim, the two of them begin to talk. Sam asks Catherine if she really loves Vincent and guesses that her inability to answer the question means that she doesn't. Catherine admits that she still wants to be with him, but now she's obligated to marry Vincent and help her family. Sam responds that she can't sacrifice her own happiness. The two of them kiss, but after a few moments, Catherine pulls away and leaves, telling Sam that it's too late for them. Sam tries to follow after her, but finds a gun to his back instead, courtesy of Vincent's bodyguard. The next morning, Catherine is in her wedding dress, and the wedding is only minutes away. Jennifer comes in and tells Catherine that she can't find Sam anywhere. Meanwhile, Sam is in the lowest room of the ship, where he has been held overnight by Vincent, hanging by his wrists from a rope attached to the ceiling. Vincent comes in wearing his wedding suit, cuts Sam free, and pushes him into the garbage below. His bodyguard starts the mechanism that pushes the garbage out into the ocean, and the two of them leave. Al arrives, still venting about all of the garbage polluting the Earth's oceans. Upstairs, Weathers is escorting Catherine down the aisle. He asks her if she's happy, and Catherine calmly tells him that she is. Catherine joins Vincent, and the ceremony begins. Downstairs, Al urges Sam to reach up and grab one of the chains hanging from the ceiling, which Sam frantically manages to do moments before being swept out into the water. The ship's captain is about to pronounce Vincent and Catherine as man and wife. As Al desperately calls out for Sam, suddenly Catherine cuts off the captain's words and tells Vincent that she doesn't love him and she can't marry him. Vincent tells Weathers to talk to his daughter, but Weathers stands by Catherine's side supporting her decision. Sam arrives covered in garbage and tells the captain to have Vincent arrested for attempted murder. Sam and Vincent get into a fight and Sam knocks Vincent down with a punch. 
Vincent's bodyguard tries to intervene, but is met with a punch from Weathers. Catherine throws her arms around Sam and kisses him. Al tells Sam that Catherine and Philip are going to have six children, and Jennifer will write a best-selling book about Philip's seafaring adventures, which will make enough money to keep the family stable until the cruise business recovers. Sam kisses Catherine again and leaps. And that recap was from Phil. Thanks, Phil. Philip Dumont. Hmm. <laughs> so what do you think the theme of this episode was? Hmm. You mean like the big moral dilemma in it, maybe? Yeah. I don't think there was one, really. I think it was just a romantic comedy and maybe a little bit to do with marriage and marrying for love is more important than marrying for money or status convenience yeah don't let your parents bully you into marrying someone you don't love arranged marriages i don't know yeah how did that all come about anyway you know they were in negotiations to buy the company and then he asked weathers so i heard you have a daughter that might sweeten the deal like like how did that come up i feel like it was something like i have a deal for you i want your daughter's hand in marriage and i'll rescue your business i can see it's going under I'd rather lose my business than have my daughter marry somebody she didn't love. Especially some convicted felon called Vinny the Viper. Like a mobster. Yeah. Vincent Loja, not Vinny. Okay. <laughs> I like how that was like a running gag through the episode, that people would call him Vinny, then say Vincent. Even his henchman was <laughs> like, he's like, don't call me Vinny. So what do you think of, uh, this is the first episode on a boat, I believe. Yeah. What do you think about that? You like being on a boat? I loved being on the cruise. Being on cruises is awesome. Eat a lot of food, though. You gain 10 pounds. Yeah, all you can eat food <laughs> 24 hours a day. It's horrible. <laughs> it's good that they are usually only like a max of seven days. Cause <laughs> yeah, some, some go 30. I couldn't imagine that. At the end of seven days, I was like, I can't eat anymore. I felt like I was those overweight people floating on the ship on Wally. <laughs> Yeah, I was shockingly seasick, though. <laughs> really? Well, remember oh, we not got... watching the episode. On, on oh, the no, cruise. on the actual yeah. cruise. Mm -hmm. I think we prepared for you to be seasick, and I was seasick instead. That was funny. Which is weird, because I've been on boats. I have no problem with boats, but be, I guess it's different on a cruise ship. I do wear those little seasick dots that go behind your ear. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> it's weird. They did have like a, a little message about garbage, I would say, and being dumped in the ocean. I wonder if that's gotten any better over the years. It's weird to me that they do that. I mean, most people know not to litter. That's a logic thing. Common sense. Yeah, I don't know if they do it like that anymore. I don't know if cruise ships, per se, dump their entire load of garbage into the ocean. I feel like that probably doesn't happen anymore. But I'm not sure. I have no idea. Well, like, I feel like commercial cruise lines don't do that. Maybe like people privately owned boats and stuff i know that there's I, I didn't get a total i know that al was talking about a total of garbage in the ocean and i couldn't find an actual total according to google <laughs> um no it's it's the like pollution marine website marine life and pollution but it said that it was actually legal to dump your garbage into the ocean until the early 1970s but now it just occurs illegally so I'm sure it's not big cruise ships as much as it's privately owned companies or 
small boats that are dumping their garbage in the ocean. But the episode, very good. I loved that Beverly Leach was in it. I liked her from a show she did that I watched when I was a teenager, which I think was for younger kids, but I actually enjoyed it. It was called Square One Television. It was all about math, but a segment in that was MathNet, kind of like Dragnet, and she played a police officer investigating crimes that could only be solved through math. Well, you're good at math, so maybe that's why. (laughs) Thanks, Beverly Leach. Are you being sarcastic? No, you are. You're good at math. I am. Better than spelling. Mm, I'm not good at either. <laughs> but I enjoyed the show. I really did. It, it was like elementary grade math. So when I was a teenager, I was like, yeah, I got this. Maybe that's why I watched it. <laughs> it's kind of like when you watch Kid Jeopardy and you're like, ooh, I know these. Yeah. I love the wood paneling in the uh, stateroom sets. You didn't like it? <laughs> No, but it's like 80s decor, which is odd because it's supposed to take place in the 50s and it doesn't look 50s to me. It looked like tacky 80s decor. Maybe that's why you like it. (laughs) My understanding is they replicated it pretty authentically. I'm sure. It just didn't look 50s to me, but I don't really know what 50s cruise ships look like. I didn't go on any 50s cruises. The Queen Mary, you can still uh, go on there in uh, California. That's where this was. The next time I'm in Cali and 50s cruise ship. They actually filmed on the Queen Mary, so that's pretty cool. Oh, that is cool. I was going to ask you about that. Both Beverly Leach and James Harper talk about their time filming on the Queen Mary, so that's pretty interesting. Something to look forward to in a little bit. I was confused. Why is she wearing her wedding dress when Sam leaps in? Because I'm like, did they have to postpone the wedding because he leaped in, you know, because he interrupted or what? But on the whatever time, the last time I watched it, fourth or fifth time, I realized that there's pins all around the outside of her neckline. So it is her dress fitting, her official dress fitting, which is odd that there's still pins in her dress two days before her wedding. Seems a little crazy to me, but... I wonder if the whole thing was rushed. It's a possibility. It didn't seem like they knew anybody on the boat either. So it's like they all just went on a cruise ship and the audience for the wedding, they weren't involved in the story. So I feel like they were just... The people that were there. Yeah, it's weird. Like, come see a wedding today on the poop deck. (laughs) On the poop deck? I don't know what deck is which, but poop is funny. (laughs) It's funny that she said she couldn't breathe after she got out of the closet because she said the wedding dress was too tight. The whole time up until that point, including that point, the wedding dress is just like floating on her. The top where like her sleeves and stuff are loose, but I feel like around her stomach, which is where she's like trying to breathe, is tight. I don't know. I think you can breathe uh, with your chest, too. I think it's called lazy breathing when you breathe with your belly. What? Yeah, you breathe using your stomach muscles instead of your diaphragm. It's called lazy breathing. Huh. I don't know. Or what today we call breathing. (laughs) Maybe I'm just a lazy breather. It was a very funny start to the episode when Sam gets slapped, kissed, punched, knocked over, It was just like a physical comedy for most of the beginning of the episode. And then it transitioned to like a situational comedy later on. There were so many things floating up in the air and the way they all interacted was very funny. The part with the flowers was very funny. Even when the stewards that were holding the flowers were like, these are heavy, sir. (laughs) Sir, these are getting really heavy. (laughs) Yeah, I really did like the little comedy things, especially the misquotes. I think that was my favorite. You know, I'm not the best at knowing where quotes came from, but I knew they were wrong. Right. And he got the quotes wrong and who said them wrong. One would be bad enough. If I quote something, I would definitely not say whose quote it was. Especially if you didn't know. But luckily, after I say something, I can fact check it and edit it out. 
Yeah, I've never really been one to quote someone, but if I'm going to quote someone, I'm going to know it and I'm going to know who said it if I'm going to say it. But it was funny that he was just... That was the whole funny part, I think. I think at the end, like if you didn't get that he was misquoting things as well as others, maybe people that were into reading or history, then when Sam corrects him and says Gilbert and Sullivan, that's funny to everybody. Yeah, he's like, same thing or whatever. (laughs) Close enough, I think is what he says. What did we have? We had love has no rot like a woman scorn. I like that Jennifer was like, huh? (laughs) Like, huh? Like, that sounds like something I know. Like, that's not the right thing. The actual quote is hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Yeah. Love has no rot. (laughs) I don't even know what that means. (laughs) What's that mean? So when the henchman hints something about Italian men, what does he mean by that? It's probably a stereotype that was back then that uh, Italian men abuse their wives. Yeah, that's what I figured. You know, it's a stereotype, so not all Italian men abuse their wives. But back then when the Italian men were mobsters, not all Italian men, but these Italian men, maybe that's why it applied. (laughs) You're like really trying to (laughs) tiptoe around that. Well, I mean, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of nice Italian guys that really love their wives and children and were not abusive. Yeah, I think that the dad, Vinny's dad, kind of hinted toward that too. Like, get your women in line. Women and children are so disrespectful. (laughs) It was funny to me and pathetic that Weathers was like, yeah, Marion had the same problem before our wedding. And she's just like. (laughs) Like, exactly. I didn't love you and I married you. And this is what happened. Like, this is not what I wanted for my daughter. No, people do that. They marry people that they don't love. That's weird. It is weird. I I don't know any other reason to marry except for love. If you're going to spend all your time with someone, you better at least like them because... I don't know if they even did back then because men went to work and women stayed home. So I guess it didn't really matter who you married. All I know is I wouldn't want some guy to come home from work and beat me. So that doesn't seem like a good pair. And you wouldn't want that to happen to your daughter either. No, but he doesn't seem like a great husband to marry either. I enjoyed his character and like I understood what he was trying to do for his family and it was the best option. But after he convinced Catherine to go through with the wedding and the look on his face like, what did I just do kind of thing? I enjoyed that part of his character's journey in this episode. And then when he stood up at the wedding and said, if my daughter doesn't want to marry you, she's not marrying you. Yeah, I'm glad he redeemed himself at the end. But he seemed very like ignorant and like, I'm from Harvard, so I'm better than you. Yeah, that was the funny running gag. Harvard 19. Yeah, Harvard 1919. I guess that was a thing. I don't know. I guess if you go to Harvard, you just tell people all the time. Yeah, he definitely thought he was better than everyone else because of that. So, But his business was going under. And was it the shipping business or the cruise ship business? Because both of them were mentioned, and I wasn't sure. I didn't know if he owned multiple ships, and some he did shipping, and some he did cruise ships. I don't know. And I was confused in that because they were talking about the shipping business, so I I didn't realize that it was actually his cruise ship that they were on until later on when Al mentions that the cruise business comes back in the 70s. Probably my favorite scene in this episode was the tango scene. That was cool. The whole scene, even the beginning where... With the French guy? Yeah. That's not French? Excuse me, monsieur. I'm uh, not a French. I only speak with a French accent. And then he goes back to the French accent Mm -hmm. when he says that he can play the tango or whatever. Sam knows French. That was a cute scene. Did you notice in the uh, tango scene, which was done amazingly, by the way, there was like scratches on the film? Yeah, what's up with that? I don't know. I think... 
when they're remastering it in high definition, you would think they would fix things like that. But I think it actually comes down to who's controlling Quantum Leap right now. And Universal owns Quantum Leap. And nobody that I think loves or cares about Quantum Leap is in charge of Quantum Leap there. It's like they were given it in a deal or something with somebody else, NBC, Universal, Comcast, Disney, Walmart, that is a conglomerate <laughs> right now. And um, they're like, yeah, just remaster it in high definition. And they do. But there's nobody there to say, hey, this doesn't look good and we need to fix this and this person needs to do it. We'll send it out to this company, pay them the money to do it. Because literally fixing those few shots, you could do on your home computer in a few evenings. Yeah. But nobody did it. Seems weird. It's like it was like an oversight or something. Just to me, it feels like there's no one there to care. And I think that's the reason why Quantum Leap over the years has not had anything lately done with it because nobody that wants to do anything with it is in control of it. And the people in control of it couldn't care less. It's weird. So uh, maybe we'll get a fan edit out there that somebody will fix those shots. But I'm glad they used them because uh, it was a great dance scene and... You know what? There was a lot of great ADR in this episode. Usually I complain a lot about the ADR, but when they were dancing and uh, Beverly Leach had all those loop lines, they were spot on the whole time. And the Philip Dumont mirror scene was perfection. Like, too good. Like, I didn't see him and think, that's ADR. Like, I know it was, but it was so good. So good. It might have just been the person directing the ADR in the episode and saying, oh, let's do it again until we get it. Let's do it again until we get it. Well, it might be that they filmed, I'm assuming they filmed Philip Dumont in the mirror and then Sam went back and practiced until he got it right. I don't know if they just normally don't do it like that, but it worked so good this time. Okay. I have a question for you. Okay. Tell me if you recognize this plot. A poor guy woos a woman that's set to marry a rich man. She doesn't love him, but she's doing it to save the family and the finances. The rich man is a bad guy and tries to do away with the poor guy. And the girl and the poor guy dance, and they meet secretly later, and they kiss. And then an iceberg hits the ship. <laughs> hmm. Does that plot sound familiar at all? Yeah, weird. Did you think about Titanic at all when you watched this? Not in that sense. I didn't think movie Titanic. Like I said, at first I thought it was going to be something Titanic when he first leaped in, but after the first couple minutes, I didn't think that anymore. A very similar plot, but of course Titanic wasn't a comedy, and this ship didn't sink. Ooh, spoilers. <laughs> I think at this point people know the ending to both. And Titanic came out in 1997, so maybe James Cameron saw this episode of Quantum Leap and thought he had an original idea. What's crazy is that this came out before Titanic, so right. it's not even like they copied I think Deborah Pratt needs to look into getting some of the royalties from uh, Titanic. <laughs> She's the inspiration for Jack and Rose. It's crazy that I saw that on VHS when I was a kid. Never let go. I actually had to I couldn't watch the ending, so. Really? When I was a kid, I was like nine. Oh. Yeah, I stopped it when there was freezing bodies in the water. Oh, okay. It's a little rough for me. <laughs> it's got a happy, sad ending, though. Mm, now when you're nine and you think like... You watch like Scooby-Doo and they pull the mask off at the end. Like there's no like, and everybody warmed up and everything was fine at the end. There's no like, it. everybody dies. Due to our knowledge of cryonics, everybody was brought back. <laughs> oh wait, maybe 100 or 200 years too early. Beverly Crusher, man, she could have saved everybody. Yeah, she would have been like Rose. There was totally enough room on that door. 
<laughs> Mythbusters proved that they both could have survived. Selfish little wench. Really, you can't fault Rose or Jack because you would have had to be a scientist like Jamie and Adam because they had to actually take one of the life vests and put it underneath the floating door for it to all work. But it worked. I think the breaking apart of the frozen hand at the end was a little rough for me. Yeah, I don't know. I just There was a Godfather reference in that. That was cool. That was funny. It was like, oh, now for you can't refuse. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing that gets me every time when I watch this episode is Jennifer says, where are the blue shorts? And she hands him a pair of green ones and a pair of yellow ones. Is this the hashtag the dress thing? <laughs> to me, it looked green. Are they white and gold? No, it's a definitely, it was definitely blue and yellow. It's teal. I mean, but it was there was no way it was blue. Blue and teal, like teal is a shade of blue and green. It was definitely green. She hands him the green shorts and the yellow shorts and says, where are the blue? I knew what she was talking about. To me, they're teal. And the dress was definitely white and gold. It was definitely white and gold. Until about an hour later and it was blue and black. Still white and gold to me. Even when I saw on Ellen the lady wearing the dress in blue and black, the picture is still white and gold to me. What color were the shorts? Teal. Which is what? I, I only know eight colors that came in the crayon box. I'm sorry for you. It was green and yellow. It was more like a cerulean. Cerulean blue. You <laughs> see nothing. It's cerulean blue. The pool on the Queen Mary reminded me of the pool where they were growing algae and seaweed in on the movie Goliath Awaits. So I looked that up and it was actually filmed on the Queen Mary too. So I was like, oh, cool. Oh, so it's the same pool. Yeah. It's a really cool looking set. The pool without water looks scary to me. Yeah. Because there's like a slide, and if you go on the slide, then you die. You die. <laughs> the slide of death. <laughs> if you fall in this huge concrete hole in the pool area with no water in it, you die. Can you explain something to me? Okay. Why would they empty the pool every night? At least I know the cruise ship we were on, they emptied the pool when the weather was rough. Why? I don't know. I guess they So it didn't want to flood the ship? I'm guessing. Maybe if it was off balance, the water would come out of the pool and it would be on the top of the deck and go down the stairs. I'm sure it's happened. I just thought it was weird that every single night at 11 o'clock, they would empty the pool. And then what? Like refill it? I feel like in 1950, did they have really that well of a filtering system for the pool water? I don't know. Like I know now that they have some sort of filtering system because when we went on our cruise, I, I think we learned something about how they put the water in the pools and some kind of filtering to make it not salt water or something. Wasn't that right? They emptied it every night, but they filled it back up. It wasn't right. closed. It was just like, we're emptying the pool and filling it back up. Yeah, but why? I just feel like it's Change out the water? Of... There's no chlorine in it, so it's, but it's a salt water pool, which have become popular lately. There was a few little mistakes in this episode that I saw. When Sam falls into the garbage, you can see the crash mat. <laughs> Maybe someone threw away their crash mat. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I'm thinking. It's, it's very possible that somebody threw away a crash mat. Like, we don't need this on the ship anymore, so we're going to throw it away. I was very lucky. It's good there wasn't any broken glass or anything in there. Yeah, it's lucky that someone threw away their crash mat the night before. I spent a good hour looking at the garbage frame by frame. I was looking up different produce companies and seeing... Did people really eat lettuce in 1954? Well, just, you know, the, the companies and seeing if they existed or not, because it was obviously garbage from the early 90s. Paper plates. Did they have paper plates like that in the 50s? I think so. But as I'm looking at the different companies of the beer and the produce, I noticed the ad for the car, and it was like a 1990... Whatever. Crappy car. But I was, <laughs> but definitely didn't exist in the 50s. So they were like, these people aren't going to be able to see what's in the garbage. You probably couldn't. Are you going to get that fan now that goes, really, guys? You're nitpicking the garbage. <laughs> I think my favorite part about the pool scene, going back to the pool scene, 
is when he says, come down, I promise I won't splash you. (laughs) (laughs) That was a romantic scene, too. Very, very um, hot. What's funny is you can tell they did a couple takes on the kissing scene because her lipstick is there and then it's gone and then it's there and then it's gone. And, like her lips look a little swollen and then they're back to normal. That's so funny. they got a little hubba hubba a couple times. Yeah. I don't know. I, she was like, I can't marry you. It's too late. I can't marry you. But it's never too late. You got a second chance at happiness. Don't let it sail away again. I was like, <laughs> I see what you did there. I have a problem with her mother, Jen and Kate's mom. Okay. She's kind of just a blob who doesn't stick up for herself and doesn't make decisions for herself and is letting her husband decide who her daughter is marrying because he lost some kind of business sense or something. And I feel like as a mom, that's really disappointing. And I know that a lot of women were and are probably still like that today, but like... She's just a blob. She's like, oh, everything's fine. Everything's just fine. It was the 50s, 1950s. I don't think women knew there were people yet. I really I think... people who were alive in the 50s, and they're not like that. Now. So, like, they just woke up one day and was like, oh, yeah, I guess I can say no or yes. I think so. I think back then they believed what they were told, that they were second-class citizens. That's so depressing to me. I mean, I'm not the kind of person that just like raises a fight to raise a fight. I mean, I'm pretty easygoing and and I pretty much go with the flow. When I order Chinese food and they leave half my stuff at the restaurant, you know, whatever, I'm figure it out. Like, I I don't really complain when people mess things up. So, I mean, I'm, I'm easygoing with things like that. And I kind of try to go with the flow because I feel like, you know, obviously I stress, everybody stresses, but like, I feel like some things you just can't control. But I feel like she's just a waste of space, and that's just so depressing to me. I would agree with you when her husband was present and the other men were present, but when it was just the girls in the room, Patricia Hartley, who plays Marion Farrington, she had a really good scene when it was just her and the girls. Where she says that she gave up the love of her life to marry the rich dude that she was assigned to marry, and that don't worry about Philip, he's probably okay. That's where I had the main problem with her. That's where I wrote that scene is because of that. She goes, he's probably fine. Well, she's not a blob in that scene. But she's telling her daughter to be a submissive nothing. As her mother told her and as her grandmother told her mother and so on and so on. Which is disappointing to me as a woman. Right. Back then, people didn't know that they were people. I don't agree with that. Well, 1950s, isn't that when like the women's rights advocacy like... I knew it took place sometime between Donna Reed and Mary Tyler Moore, which is the 50s and 70s, so. Yeah, maybe it was like the, this is the time. I think that it sucks that we went from a one-income family where the wife stayed home with the kids, and now we're at a two-income family where everybody pretty much has to work now to afford everything we had before when only one parent worked, and now we get to see our kids half the time, and moms still have to come home and do everything they would have had to do if they weren't working. I I like that we have a choice now and I like that we don't get treated like blobs and but it's just I I guess as a woman it it pains me to see that women were just like yeah well I married your dad because my parents said I had to and now you're I'm so proud you're gonna do the same thing. But what's the great part of this episode 
that her daughter <laughs> realizes that it's a bad idea. And stood up for herself and didn't make that same mistake. Yeah. That's so good. that's a good because thing. Because of Sam and Right. Al. Both Sam and Al were trying to get to the wedding to stop the wedding. But, but she did it. She did it probably due to what Sam was telling her. So he right. had already saved the day. So why didn't Al's handling say, oh, everything's going to be all right? Because he needed to get punched. The guy needed to get punched and Sam had to punch him. Hmm. And they had to kiss and... No, that's Back to the Future, I think. Oh. No, it's this, this episode oh, Okay, two. okay. <gasps> Titanic plus Back to the Future equals... Quantum Leap Seabride. Woohoo! This is awesome. I guess he had to survive the whole getting dumped out with the garbage to have six kids. So that's when the history changed there. But she wouldn't have married Vinny the Viper anyway. Right, because of, I think, what he said at the pool and maybe while they were dancing. So he accomplished his mission before the final scene. He usually does. I think that's kind of the thing. And then there's like that one extra, like at the end of What Praise Gloria, where he could have leapt, but instead he had to give that guy what was coming to him. One other thing about that wedding scene that I just love every single time is when Catherine, after she says she's not marrying Vinny, and Sam tells the captain to arrest Vinny the Viper, she says, if Vinny says he tried to kill him, I believe him. You know, her real accent came out. She wasn't trying to be all prim and proper. Yeah, I like that. Weddings on a cruise ship, kind of weird, huh? I'm sure it happens. People get married all kinds of places. No, but I, I guess that's pretty cool to get married on a cruise ship. I, I know it does happen. Maybe it was just so Catherine couldn't escape. I was thinking it was like a free venue because it was their cruise ship. Probably. They have really nice ballrooms and staterooms and all that stuff, and it wouldn't cost that much because they own the ship. Right. And they didn't have a lot of money because the business was going under. So who knows? They could have had a negative cash flow and couldn't have afforded a wedding anywhere else. Yeah. And basically catering because everything's catered on the ship anyway. And, and efficient. The captain. Right. His part wasn't that big, but it was really good, I think. Maybe we should get married on a cruise. Oh. All right. Mm, too late. Maybe next time. Am I invited? <laughs> People will renew our vows on the cruise if ship. If I get lost at sea, you can have a wedding on the cruise ship. You don't go anywhere. Exactly. Okay. Deal. So overall, final impressions of Quantum Leap Sea Pride. Two thumbs up. I liked it. It was funny. Action-packed. Amusing. I want to see it again and again. It was much better than Cats. I don't get your reference, but I like Cats. With that, as promised, we have an interview with Vinny the Viper himself, James Harper. James Harper is an actor who has been in over 20 films. He has made over 200 guest appearances on television shows. He's been in many theater productions. He's also a voice actor who stars in StarCraft. But us leapers know him as Vinny the Viper. Oh, excuse me. Vincent Loja from the season two episode of Quantum Leap, Seabride. Hello, Mr. Harper. It is an absolute honor to speak with you today. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine. Just fine. Vinny the Viper himself. Yeah, don't call me Vinny. <laughs> <laughs> don't call me Vinny. <laughs> oh, wow, what fun that show was. What fun that was. How did you uh, get connected with Quantum Leap, and how did you get the role of Vinny the Viper? Vincent, or Vincent, Vincent Loggia. Vincent Loggia. Vincent Loggia. Vinny, Vinny the Viper. Well, actually, you know, it was uh, just, uh, just uh, uh, my agent submitted me for... Uh, for the role that was when I that was er, earlier on uh, in my life in LA in the world of film and television uh, I migrated uh, back to my native state I'm from California uh, 
but I migrated back here from New York, where I had been for about 18 years. And I think it was about the second... What what was that episode done? Was it 91, 90? I want to say 1990. Yeah. It's always further back than I think. I, I think, <laughs> you know, I think it was like, it was maybe around the third season of the show or maybe... It was uh, close to the end now. of the second. Second season. See, I always think of it like, well, it must have been in the fifth season or something. No, it's just but that's how prominent it was in my mind at the time. Anyway, my agent sent me in. I auditioned for it and I got it. I got the offer right away, as a matter of fact. No hesitation about it. That same day it came through and... uh it was great, and and uh, worked with uh, uh, Beverly Leach. Did you interview Beverly? Yes, uh, we had a great conversation. Yeah, I love Bev. Love Bev. She spoke very highly of you. She did. Yes. <laughs> Bless her heart. <laughs> Bless her heart. Oh, I love her. We had the same agent at the time, as a matter of fact, and that's how we actually met way back then. Was not only connected up with with the show. But uh, but through the agency, we knew each other. And, uh, you know, it's been uh, so many wonderful people worked on that show. And it's been great to catch up with people over the years. I've had the great, great pleasure of seeing, didn't see him this year, but uh, almost every year at holiday time, Christmas time, uh, mutual social friends of mine and Scott Bakula have a annual get-together party, and many times Scott has been there. So I always see him once a year, <laughs> no matter what else is going on. And he's he's just the sweetest, nicest guy in the world and always has has lots uh, to say, and we always have a nice conversation. So, so it's great. Um, I also had the great good pleasure of working with um, uh, the costume designer, Jean-Pierre. I had the pleasure of working with him on, on another episodic something later on down the road, and he's just greatest person the costumes for that show were fabulous and um the uh dp on the show michael watson uh michael certainly remembered me a number of years later because he's done lots and lots a ton of directing i also ran into him and he was dp for uh, a piece that i did shot in las vegas a few years later and then he was director uh, the episode of uh, NYPD Blue that I did, that I guest starred in. I, I played the title role in that particular episode. So these people, you know, and John Hertzler. As a matter of fact, John and I were in that same thing we shot in Las Vegas together. So th- these people, they keep coming in and out of, you know, my life. You keep, it, it's always great. I always found that as a sign that I made it in, in Hollywood. <laughs> First time that I worked with a crew guy on a second project, you know. <laughs> The very first thing I shot out here was the very first thing I could cast in out of L.A. and shot, uh, although it wasn't here that I shot it, was Blaze with Paul Newman. And that was the first film I got cast in out of L.A. And about a year later, I was shooting something else. Oh, The Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez thing, um, with A. Martinez and Richard Jordan. And uh, uh, shooting it downtown. And uh, I, I ran into a guy who was on, had been on the crew of Blaze working in Baton Rouge. So I said, oh, my goodness, this is great. First time ever I've worked with the same person on different <laughs> films. I've made it. Hooray. I'm consistent. <laughs> no, it was uh, great. So the show and then, of course, the show was so much fun to shoot. And that episode being shot on the Queen Mary. What was that like? It was it was extraordinary. And, and I did have a very I've told this story uh, a number of times. I've told it at a couple of cons 
having to do with video game that I that I'm um, big in. Um, uh, Starcraft. Oh, how did you know? <laughs> <laughs> You've been doing that for quite a while. Uh, God, all things considered, yeah, that's what's really scary. <laughs> I did StarCraft One. Wow. The original in nineteen, we voiced it in 1997, and they called me up out of the blue in 2010 or 2009, I guess, basically nearly 10 years later, for the sequel. So, yeah, that was uh, very cool. So, anyway, th- th- yeah, we shot a couple places, but the Queen Mary shoot w- was night shoots. And we shot till, you know, four or five o'clock in the morning. It was still dark outside. Uh, have you ever been to the Queen Mary in Long Beach? I have not. You have not. Okay. So it's a big ship. You know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> big ship sitting down there in the port of Long Beach. And uh, lots of tourists come on the ship. So of course, when they do a shoot, and particularly a night shoot, the, the ship shut down and, and nobody's there but the crew and everything is shooting, whatever it is you're shooting. Uh, and there's a gigantic parking lot, and there's a huge, huge parking lot. It goes forever. And it because it gets foggy and everything down there, the parking lot lights are those yellowish fog lights to cut through the fog. They're not white neon. They're, they're fog lights. And I, I had, I, I will date myself and, 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 and show you how basic my life was then early on in my career. This was in 1990. I was driving a 1983 Chevrolet Cavalier <laughs> two door. It was red. Um, had lots and lots of miles on it. Uh, no air conditioning. Not that it was broken. It didn't have air conditioning. Oh, wow. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so I'm there, I'm probably, we're shooting all night long. It is kind of foggy towards the end of the night. Everybody leaves and I go down the gangplank and everything else, get back down on level ground and the parking lot, because I stayed there for a long time talking with people, the, the remnants. I'm always the last to leave everywhere. And I come outside and I'm looking in the parking lot and I went, oh my God, I don't know why. Anybody would do this, but somebody has stolen my car. <laughs> Who would want a 1983 Chevy Cavalier with no air conditioning? My car is not here. There were three cars in this vast parking lot, nothing else. There was uh, one car over this way, another one over that way, and then there was this little one over here that was kind of gray in color. And stuff. And I'm, oh my God, I run back up onto the Queen Mary and I get the Get one of the ADs and everything, and I'm freaking out. My car, you know, it's gone. And then I can't afford a car, another one. I'm insured, but still, what are they going to give me for a 1983 Chevy Cavalier? And I'm freaking out. And and so some people come down there with me in the AD, and I'm going, my car, my car is, it was right here. It was in this row. It was in this row right here. It was, it was, it was, it was like, it was very close to where that, that two door gray car is that's <laughs> sitting there. That gray car that's sitting right there. It was, it was very, very similar to that, 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 that's my car. <laughs> <laughs> Yellow fog lights turn the color red, gray. Who would know that though? I, yeah. Who would know that? Yeah. So my car wasn't stolen, but <laughs> I, and I, I freak, I'm, I must have been freaking out for 45 minutes. <laughs> and then I was fully, 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 fully embarrassed, fully, um, fully, completely embarrassed. <laughs> totally. Ah, well, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> um, anyway, 
so uh, uh, another one of the another one of the very nice people. I think you may have interviewed her. Uh, another person that was always extraordinarily nice to me, and um, had many discussions with. As a matter of fact, saw her five years ago at the uh, at the twentieth convention. Uh, Deborah Pratt. She is a lovely lady. You've met her. Uh, we talked on the phone. You did, yeah. Mm-hmm. Lovely, lovely, lovely woman. Just terrific. Very talented. She and he were married, I believe, at the time. Mm. <laughs> Mr. Belisario. And, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, of course. And the director, of course, of that episode, who I ended up working with on another thing later, absolutely fabulous, Joe Napolitano. Great director. And they had another director on there that I didn't work with on this show, but I worked with him on another show later who's also just a fabulous guy, if you ever get a chance to meet him or talk to him, James Whitmore Jr. Yeah, great, great, great people. Great, great people. And uh, Beverly Leach, just what a, what a, oh yeah, of course, I'm forgetting somebody else who was on the show who I worked with and I knew from my theater days back in New York, Kurt Knudsen, Ooh. who played the, the ship's captain. Oh, he was pretty good. He did the he did the marrying of them, I believe. Yeah, we did uh, way back in 1981-82. We did a production of Cyrano de Bergerac at the Longwharf Theater in Connecticut with uh, Anthony Zerbe. Who did you play? I played. Well, it's a great. There's no small parts, only small actors. <laughs> this is this really is a terrific small part. You're going to have a small part, Cyrano. This is this is the one they have. Um, Liniere, L-I-G-N-I-E-R-E, Liniere. He is the drunken poet that they all come to after kill and Cyrano protects him. He's the one that Cyrano goes out to avenge them attacking him uh, and goes after to tackle the 100 guys. Uh, anyway, it's it's uh, Liniere, wonderful small part, wonderful small part. And I did a couple of things. It was a very interesting production because there were, and I became pretty good friends with Anthony. I've seen Anthony over the years. As a matter of fact, again, that thing that I did in Las Vegas, which was actually called Treasure Island, by the way. It was the most expensive infomercial in the history of infomercials. Uh, NBC uh, had an hour of television time after the Super Bowl in 1990-whatever-it-was. It was uh, Steve Wynn, the Las Vegas mogul Steve Wynn, right. who built Treasure Island. He bought an hour's worth of NBC airtime immediately following the Super Bowl, whatever year that was. And uh, we had gone to Las Vegas and filmed this um, adaptation, loose adaptation of Treasure Island. Uh, and Anthony played Long John Silver and John Hertzler was, uh, you know, he played the bad guy. I, I had a small little thing in it. I had actually assisted the casting of it. And uh, it was designed to, they incorporated the... Um, implosion of can't remember which hotel it was the first time they imploded a hotel there in vegas that they did national footage of anyway i remember seeing that they aired it yeah they aired it and um and then (laughs) i don't know that it still does anymore but it played on a loop non-stop in the hotel (laughs) um a closed circuit Oh, cool. <laughs> very cool. If you were if you were a guest in the room, you could watch it. Have to stay there uh, next time. Anyway, check that um, out. You mentioned uh, John Hertzler. Yeah. Most people, listeners, will know him from his work on Star Trek. You actually did right. an episode of Deep Space Nine. Uh, I did. I did an episode of Deep Space Nine. I don't think that John was on that episode. I don't think so. And I don't remember 
that I actually knew at the time that John was doing. <laughs> Another one of my old dear good friends, Casey Biggs. I don't know if you know who Casey Biggs is. Casey was on it for also a long time, too. Somebody else I worked with went to. What was your experience like on uh, Deep Space Nine? It was a, it was an interesting experience. It was a very interesting experience. Again, a lot of great people. A lot of great people on it based in the theater. People I've, I'd worked with forever. I got to meet some new people. Rene Abergenois, who played Odo, wasn't that his name? Yes. Uh, Rene, uh, I had worked with my very first professional production in theater back in 1973 in Central Park, New York Shakespeare Festival, in a production between my years at Juilliard. Uh, it was a production of King Lear with James Earl Jones, directed by Ed Sharon. And, uh, you know, Rene played Edgar. Poor Tom, or old Julia was in it. Paul Sorvino was in it. Uh, oh, my goodness. Oh, uh, so, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of us in the chorus who who were nobody at the time, and later many of the guys went on to do other things, like Frankie Faison, who's been, who stuck it out in New York, and he's been on Broadway. I think he got a Tony Award, actually, at least for one of um, August Wilson's plays. Uh, another one of August Wilson's regular guys, uh, uh, Anthony Chisholm. We were all guys that George Sunza, but he had a little bigger part than George did. But uh, Paul Sorvino was Gloucester, uh, Raul, Tom Aldridge, and the list goes on and on and on. Doug Watson played Kent, wonderful Doug Watson, and I understudied him and actually ended up going on for him four times. Hmm. Uh, 23 years old and playing Kent opposite James Earl Jones and Rene Bergenlon. Roll Julian. Wow. So on and so forth. Anyway, so here, Rene is, I can't remember if that's the first time I had run into him. I think I had run into him actually through some other theater stuff out here. But uh, he was on, he was there on that episode shooting. Another person who has come to be, uh, uh, come with friends with he and his wife over the years too, is also because of my, my significant other's uh, theater work here in LA, um, Armin Shimmerman. If you, you know Armin? Oh, yes. Uh, Cork. Yeah. Right. Cork, right. right. Great actor, oh. Buffy, a lot of stuff. Yeah, lots, lots of things, lots of things. Um, yeah, so it, it was, it was one of uh, the the uh, costume designer was a theatrical costume designer, Robert Blackman, and uh, the wonderful, wonderful young lady who did my makeup, and I had some great pictures. I just came across them the other day. I'd forgotten all about Karen Westerfield. Um, I had been three years into the founding, a co-founder of a theater company, small theater company here in LA. And we were doing our second uh, full company production, which was consisted of three one-act plays by the playwright Richard Dresser. And I needed some odd props <laughs> for this. These are very dark comedies. <laughs> and um, so I had made friends with Karen and, and she actually made up these brilliant brilliant props, including one, she took a, a woman's talcum powder box, one of those round mm -hmm. boxes, you know, like would have Chanel number no. five powder or something yeah. in it, you know, yeah. she emptied it all out. She painted it red and had a little gold trim on it. And inside, because this is one of the jokes of the play, <laughs> is that one couple goes to visit Stonehenge and the guy is suffering from Alzheimer's. They don't say Alzheimer's in the play, but that's it. So he never remembers that they've gone to Stonehenge, and mm -hmm. so they got so he they his wife had given him a souvenir, which was a miniature Stonehenge, and Karen made this most incredible miniature Stonehenge inside this little this little 
former powder, brown powder box and the little stones inside of it and this little green mat and stuff. And she made this incredible, for another one of the one acts, she made this incredible drink. It was a cocktail. This place specialized in this particular cocktail. And she, she huge glass, painted all kinds of things, and then we would add dry ice to it and then pour something over the dry ice so it would come out smoking. Anyway, so I made great connections on uh, <laughs> Deep Space Nine. It was really terrific. I had great fun, great fun doing it. I was the first. I was the first Kobliad. That was the alien that I played. Huh. I did not Raul know that. Vantica. And yes. I was the first time they had a Kobliad. When you got the script and found out that you died in the first scene, pretty much, what did you think of that? Well, um, I have to be politic here. <laughs> <laughs> be politic. Um, I auditioned for that show and, and the other, uh, you know. I guess I guess Deep Space Nine maybe was no. There were two of them going at the time. Uh, Voyager and Next Gen overlapped right. Deep Space Nine. Yeah, yeah. And um, when I auditioned for it, as you you may may not remember about the episode, um, my character takes over the body of of Doctor Bashir. Right. Well, <laughs> when I auditioned for it, um, yes, I knew uh, I was going to die, but I, me, James Harper was supposed to continue to voice all of Dr. Bashir's lines. Ah. That's what was supposed to happen. So I may have physically died, but it, the major portion of the, of the role was supposed to be the voiceover. And I was supposed to do the entirety of the rest of the episode. Because then, of course, we, the audience, can pretty much tell, oh, well, that's not Dr. Bashir's voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's that guy who's taken over his body, blah, blah, blah. But I don't really know the the whys and wherefores uh, specifically. I, I I was told certain things why that happened, but I won't get into that because I don't know whether the actor who played Dr. Bashir, uh, maybe he was having a problem doing that and he had, you know, you know, he's a regular on the show and he can, you know, any regulars on the show, they can, they don't like something sometimes. They have or the way it's going to go. Maybe he didn't like somebody else voicing his lines. Hmm. Maybe he thought that there was no problem with him still doing the part, even though somebody was supposed to have invaded his body. And <laughs> I don't know. So that's what happened. So Was the makeup hard to wear? Oh, God, the makeup was not hard to wear. It's just that if it's the first time you've just created a character, they tend to work on you, fine-tuning it forever <laughs> and ever. And ever, so the longer you're not called to the set, the longer you sit in the makeup chair. <laughs> now, part of that's okay, because you can end up doing 12 hours in a day there, so you get lots of overtime. That's wonderful aspect about it. But after six hours, seven hours of sitting in the makeup chair, you do get a little tired of it. Your posterior area tends to fall asleep and stuff, so... <laughs> I, I had taken the AD, second AD aside uh, at one point and said, call me to the set, will you please? Just get me out of the chair. Just make up something that I'm needed on the set, please. Just tell him I'm needed on the set. And uh, so he did. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Karen Westerfield was wonderful. I loved Karen, what she was doing to make him. So I just got, I just went, okay, come on, folks. We, we could, you know, we could, we could do this forever. You can keep playing, and I think it's great that you guys do that. I mean, it's just, it's really terrific. 
but you know, again, it was a great. I worked on a lot of. I've been very fortunate. Most of the sets and television things that I have done here in Los Angeles have been real pleasures to work on. And I do find that it really starts at the top and works its way down. It starts with the actual star, quote unquote, of the show and their personality and how it all filters down from them. I really found that out. One of the first shows I did out here was uh, Paradise. It was later at that time, right soon after I changed the name was changed to the Guns of Paradise. Uh, and that was great fun because it was also guest starring. I did a two episode package, uh, guest starring John Schneider and Hugh O'Brien and Gene Barry as their old TV characters. Hugh O'Brien played Wyatt Earp and Gene Barry played Bat Masterson. And, uh, it was great. But Lee Horsley is one of the, just one of the nicest guys in the world. And any kind of heat that had happened or if there was any kind of friction that happened, it was all squelched very quickly by who he is and who his being and stuff. And the same thing with Quantum Leap because of Scott. The uh, chemistry, the uh, personality from the person who's usually the top banana there on that side of the camera, really uh, it drains down to the whole set and and how everything operates. So I could give a couple of examples of shows that weren't so much like that, and I could attribute it to the people who were at the top of the show, and that would be one of the problems why. So I've been fortunate. All the things that I've done for the most, I'd say, you know, 94% of everything I've done out here has been in really, really great situations. The only there was one episodic that wasn't too hot, and there was one low-budget film that was no fun. <laughs> but there's that in everything, you know? Yes, there is. What about Armageddon? Oh, Armageddon was fun. Armageddon was fun. That's one of those, uh, you know, it's the only... I, I'd like to be in a few more blockbusters, <laughs> because Walt Disney keeps paying me. That's been since 19, what, 97 now? Yeah, quite a while. <laughs> so, so... That's another, uh, what, 18 years worth of payments I keep getting. You know? Wow. My first residual check for that film, I about fell over uh, <laughs> when I got it. Um, but it was fun, great fun. I had known, was the first time I encountered Bruce Willis since I've been in L.A., and we actually had crossed paths many years earlier in New York City, a place I used to hang out and a place he used to bartend at. Oh, wow. And I uh, reminded him of that when I first <laughs> met him out there. I don't think he wanted to hear that. <laughs> so I didn't. Okay. Okay, great. Fine. No problem. Have you seen my bit in Armageddon? Not recently, but I've seen the okay. film probably yeah. five times. But uh, yeah. I know you're Admiral Kelso, right? Yeah, I'm I'm the Admiral that comes out. I'm the guy who comes out and... Um, Flies out. I'm in the helicopter. That famous. It was always in all the previews. The helicopter oh, with the sun behind it, and fly out to the to the oil rig and uh, grab him and the other guys, Buscemi and Michael Clark Duncan and uh, Will Patton, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, oh, what is that guy's name? Uh, ben Affleck. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't remember the tall one's name. Batman himself. Uh, yes, uh, that's right. Uh, wish him luck. Yes. <laughs> um. Yeah, so that's me. It's what? It's about the first 15 to 20 minutes of the film. You were on a real oil rig, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> so was that, how was that? Yeah. 
that was uh, actually uh, things changed because I was supposed to do that. I was cast for that in the summertime. It was the summertime. It was like August, September, something like that. And we were supposed to shoot it on an oil rig off the coast of California, near Santa Barbara. And they lost the location, so they scrubbed the whole thing. And this, that already, August, September of ninety. Six, I think it was. Maybe it was 97. I can't remember what year I actually shot it. I think it might have been the end of 96. That was already towards the end of the shoot for the film. They'd already been working on shooting it for months and months and months. And they lost that uh, that location. And it was another two or three months before they came up with another location for me. So I didn't have too much time. But when they did come up with it, and they said, it's going to be out in the Gulf of Mexico. Now, I'll be very honest. Uh, I, I don't mind saying it. I don't. I don't fly. I've been fortunate. I haven't had to go anyplace to fly for a job in the past 25 years. I would, if I had to, I would kind of, because I'm not going to let keep me from a job. But, uh, of course, here was a case where I had to go to out an oil rig 250 miles out in the Gulf of Mexico. Now, on the plus side, when I was needed at the oil rig, they also needed the real Air Force helicopter and Air Force crew which they had, which they get on loan or by renting from the government. And this was a crew, uh, a real uh, search and rescue crew from um, Florida, stationed in Florida. And uh, I think including the pilot, co-pilot, and then there's five to seven additional guys. So when they needed me out there, they needed the Air Force, the, the helicopter, and vice versa. When they needed the helicopter, they needed me. So I got to fly out to the rigs on the Air Force helicopter. Now, prior to that, that week, so I'm booked on a train. <laughs> I'm booked on Amtrak to take the train from here to Houston. Uh, and then they're going to drive me down to Galveston, and then I'll get on the Air Force helicopter and fly out into the Gulf of Mexico. So I have a friend who's a traffic reporter here in L.A., very, very well-known traffic reporter. He doesn't do the flying of the helicopter he was in. He has a pilot, and then he sits there and he reports the traffic. So he's always had a standing invitation, and my significant other has gone up with him, had gone up with him in the helicopter many times, went to view the Rose Bowl parade, went to view the Rose Bowl, a lot of things. Me, I never went up. And so on a, I was leaving on Friday um, by train, and I called him up on Wednesday. I said, Jeff, I have got to go up with you. I cannot go to Houston, Galveston, get up in a helicopter, and pee in my pants in front of Bruce Willis <laughs> and Jerry Bruckheimer, <laughs> Michael Bay, and all these other people. I just can't do it. I've got to fly. He said, well, okay. So tomorrow, he said, you want to go in the morning or the afternoon? So the uh, morning is three hours up and the afternoon is two hours. I said, let's take the two hours. So I flew up with them in the afternoon and I, I, I didn't do bad at all um, because it was great because I could, I had headphones and I could hear them and I could click in on a conversation. I could ask questions, you know, and everything. So it felt very much in control. And so it was fine. So I get on the train on Friday and we head to, uh, train takes me there and then boom. And then the next day and they fly me out to the oil rig. And I always take my cam, used to take my cameras with me to every shoot. So I actually was very, very relaxed flying in the helicopter. I was sticking my head out the door <laughs> taking pictures <laughs> all the way out in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. And, uh, it was great, and a couple of uh, three three days, I think, of round trips going out there, and uh, everything was great until the last day. Um, and we finished shooting the last day, and now, the, by the way, this shooting was in January or February, so, you know, it, it's dark at five, you know what I mean? 
um, so we're shooting and of course being the last day of the shoot, guess who wants to go back in the helicopter? All, all the biggies want to go back in the helicopter. <laughs> Bruce wants to fly in the helicopter. Michael Bay wants to fly in the helicopter. Of course, Jerry Bruckheimer, Ben Affleck, Leave Tyler. Uh, they all want to fly in the helicopter. Well, that kind of leaves me out. <laughs> <laughs> so what do I got to do? I got to take the crew helicopter. And when I mean crew, I mean oil rig crew helicopter. Oh, my goodness. Which is what they've been flying the other actors back and forth in. Steve Buscemi, Will Patton, Michael Clark Duncan, all the rest of the folk have been flying in these 12-man supply helicopters. They have two pilots in there, but you don't get any headgear. Oh, by the way, yes. So I would had headphones also in the Air Force helicopter. I was able to talk to the guys, and I had complete sense of control of everything. So in this helicopter, you don't know. And there's no interior lights. And it's dark out there. And you know how big Michael Clark Duncan was, may he rest in peace, gigantic man. And he's stretched across the very tiny kind of jump seats behind the last row. (laughs) And uh, Buscemi in the helicopter and Will Patton and me and a few other people, blah, blah, blah. And it's dark. And you know when they say you can't see a horizon if there's no lights out there at night flying, you can't see the horizon. It's night out there. I'd never experienced that before, being down that low and level. And the helicopter takes off the oil rig and takes off and then immediately dives sideways. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, you feel like you're going to crash right into the ocean. And finally, it levels itself. Thank God. And Oh, my goodness. We Yeah, so we level off. Uh, Already, I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out. And so I'm sitting directly between... The pilot and co-pilot, kind of. I'm the only one that can see most of the dashboard, let's call it, you know, the display, where all of the lights are, where they control everything from. I can see that. And about 20 minutes into the flight, a huge bright red light comes on. <laughs> <laughs> That's never good. Never, ever good. And Steve Buscemi kind of tapping me, Will Patton's tapping me, kind of mouthing, because you can't hear anything. This thing's so bloody loud in there, you know, and they're saying, what is that? (laughs) Ask the pilot, you know, so I tapping him on the shoulder, you know, and he can't hear a bloody word I'm saying, you know, and he turns around and he's kind of mouthing, smiling, and going, I don't know, everything's okay, I guess. I didn't hear a word that he said, I don't know. Now, mind you, we got, we got an hour and a half, two hours nearly to go to fly back to Galveston. You can't even see the lights of Galveston yet. So it keeps flying. It keeps flying. It keeps flying. And we can see the lights on the horizon. We see the lights of Galveston, blah, blah, blah. And just at that point in time, a second red light comes on. <laughs> now we're all freaking out there. We're all freaking out. What is going on? Anyway, long story short, nothing came of it. But, you know, I think we all, when we got out of the helicopter, when the helicopter landed at Houston at Hobby Airport, I think it was Hobby Airport, so we were flying. Yeah, Hobby Airport, we were flying into. I think everybody got out of the helicopter and kissed the ground. <laughs> um, you know, I, it was, it was, it was frightening. It was really, really scary. I never want to be in a helicopter like that again. It was fine as long as I had headsets and it was a jet copter, jet propelled, you know, helicopter that had jet engines with it, you know, in the turbine, jet turbine. Um, but applying on something like this old Sikorsky, whatever it is, uh, that was, uh, that was not a lot of fun. 
Um, however, the Armageddon shoot itself was, was, was okay. was okay. I also got a speeding ticket down there, but it's the only ticket in my life I ever beat. And I beat it long distance with communication with the judge. So he believed me. He bought my story, and it was true. I wasn't making it up. But, yeah, so... Uh, that was that was cool too. But yeah, uh, uh, no, Armageddon was Armageddon was was great. Um, the sacrifices you make for art. Oh, the sacrifice! Scary helicopters. Oh, no, I was making it for money. I wasn't <laughs> <making> it. <laughs> it wasn't wasn't much art going on. Is that what you get recognized for the most? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, it would depend what I would get recognized for the most time. People don't recognize me because nobody always thinks nobody thinks it's me. But uh, yes, I'd say for a number of years, I probably got recognized for Armageddon. Um, of course, over the last five years or so, it's, it's StarCraft. I must say, though, my character in StarCraft, I'm the only actor. No, there's one other actor. I was going to say I'm the only actor that looks like his character. Not true. Dave Fenoy also looks like his character because his character was kind of, I think, designed with him in mind. Because his character has dreadlocks and, and Dave has dreadlocks, <laughs> so but they really look look similar. But um, that's probably what I'm recognized most for. But of course, that's that's in a in a niche, you know. That's that's in a genre. That's gamers recognize me, you know. And the amazing thing there is when you tell when I tell somebody who I am in the game. Of course, even now. It doesn't seem like there was that much time between them, but there are actual guys out there today whose kids are being raised on StarCraft II. Guys that played StarCraft I when they were 12 and 13 years old are now watching the second one, and some of them older than that. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. Do you have a preference? You've done television, movies, voice acting, theater. Do you have a preference, or is everyone different? It's, it's every, everything's different. Uh, I have I great get great satisfaction from live theater, and more satisfaction probably, visceral satisfaction from live theater. The emotional uh, commitment and the uh, audience. You know, there's just no nothing like the there's nothing like live theater. There's nothing like a live audience that the actor can feed off of, you know, it's a stand-up comic. A stand-up comic is funnier when the audience is responding to him. It's not as funny when the audience isn't responding. It's the same thing with a play. Um, you know, you, you, you tend to get hot when the audience is with you, you know. And, of course, that means you probably had to have been hot to begin with. You're giving them something good, and that's why they're responding the way they are. But uh, it feeds off of each other. I've done a couple of parts in the theater that were not fun people or the situations were not fun and uh, i have been subject of of verbal abuse from the audience <laughs> really <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah yep somebody i was doing the play execution of justice by emily mann uh did the original i wouldn't I don't know, I'd say the original but no it was not the original production i beg your pardon um, but it was kind of the production that brought it home. It was done, I did the production that was done by the theater that commissioned the play to begin with. A joint production with three different theaters up in the Bay Area. Execution of Justice is the story of the murder of Harvey Milk and George Moscone, mayor of San Francisco, uh, by Dan White, uh, the supervisor. Um, that's what caused Diane Feinstein's political career to rise because she became mayor after that. Um, Anyway, so I played Dan White's defense attorney. And uh, when we ruined the play at Berkeley, I had an older gentleman get up in the audience and start screaming.
screaming at me and thinking as if I were the real defense attorney. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was it was scary, scary, scary stuff. Um, what do you do? Do you ignore it? or No, you, you, you keep going as best you can. And you know that somewhere his wife or someone's going to say, Stanley, sit down. Don't, it's just a play. <laughs> Don't, you, you know, I mean, but I've had, I've had other things like that. And it's just, there is no, there's nothing equal to that feeling. Now, on the other hand, I love doing movies. Television is a little further down the list because it's just so quick. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the only drawback. Television, film, very similar, both. But television so much quicker. You don't really have time to explore, rehearse, or do enough of the prep that one would want to do. You know, the actor has to pretty much do it all on his own, her own. Did you have a fully formed character in your head uh, for Vincent Loggia? Because you, you seemed pretty scary and pretty uh, self-confident. <laughs> it was It was such a fun thing to do because you do something like that completely seriously and you have to take your character seriously and you have to believe in him and you have to believe but we got to keep in mind that was a romantic comedy episode so it's not like zero dark 30 (laughs) you know what i mean Mm -hmm. it's not like american sniper Uh, that's not the feeling the tone the mood that's being set by it but your character is as equally committed, as equally truthful, as equally honest as you would be playing uh, the role that Bradley Cooper plays in American Sniper. You're, you're just as committed, as truthful and everything else, but it's got to be funny, you know? And uh, that's kind of difficult to do. But I didn't have anything set. It all kind of developed. I don't know. I think there was probably a germ of it in my audition. That's why they hired me. There was something that they saw there. And uh, you pretty much, I think, see in television, particularly in television, because it does move so fast, there's not a lot of room for the director and the producer to say, you know, I think that actor could do it if he had some time to do it. So let's hire him. Now, they don't do that because they don't have any time. So they pretty much want to see what, what you have in the audition, and that's what they want to see on camera because that's what they've hired you for. Whatever it was you did in that audition is what they hired you for. So don't deviate. <laughs> Probably won't hire you again. Uh, <laughs> and they want to make sure that you can repeat whatever it is. You know, you, you simply don't have time to develop anything, and you really rarely have time to develop anything. Also, on a film, if you're not the lead of the film or semi lead of the film, you know, you're there for two days to shoot something. They, they don't have time. You have to come in deliver. This is what Clint Eastwood, you know, says all the time. You know, he he just he gets. He hires actors who can do do it without him giving them anything. He just wants them to deliver. But there is more satisfaction, I think, in shooting a film because you do have a little bit more time. And I think the the directors on the films, for the most part, ones I've always worked with, have been very generous in assisting and helping. And the very first feature film I did, not only did the director, who was wonderful, Michael Apted, but the late great cinematographer, Ralph Boda, who also was uh, Michael's cinematographer on many of his things, including Coal Miner's Daughter, uh, gave me some helpful hints and lessons during the shoot. This was a, a film called Firstborn, which had a lot of young actors in it who were doing the, their first or second film, like Chris Collette, who played the title role, or Corey Hyam, or Sarah Jessica Parker, or Robert Downey Jr., or... And Terry Garr was in it, and Peter Weller, oh my and goodness. so on. Yeah, so on. Look that up, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good little film. Planning on it. Um, and I had three wonderful scenes in it. 
and my career went downhill from there. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> shot that way back in 1984, I think, 83. Shot it at Bronxville High High School in Bronxville, New York, during Easter vacation. So there were no kids or anybody around. But, um, yeah, so what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, uh, satisfaction. Well, theater still gives me most satisfaction. Now, sadly, I haven't done a play in a long time. I've had a lot of reasons over the last three years or so that I haven't been able to uh, commit to a lot of things. I've had I've had to turn down some some theater and stuff. It has to do with uh, family matters and uh, uh, my mother and, and stuff like that. Who is okay? There's no no problems. <laughs> Just I'm I'm the only surviving child right now, and uh, we don't live in the same area, so I have to do spend lots of traveling back and forth to uh, Marin County in Northern California, and uh, that has kept me from doing a few things. I mean, if, if there were, I, I probably wouldn't turn down a lot of money jobs. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I've, uh, you know, I may be doing, maybe, knock on wood, maybe doing a, a really exciting project later in this year, maybe this fall. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Yeah, it will be very cool, which I can't talk about now. At least, at least in, at least in name, I can't talk. Nothing's done until it's done, right? Nothing is done until I have the pictures to say, see, there I was. I did that. <laughs> I mean, I mean, truly, really, really. Of course, I take a lot more pictures today, you know, as much as I wished I, I wouldn't succumb to the ease of taking pictures with a phone. <laughs> yeah. I do. I, I don't, I rarely use my good cameras anymore. Of course, all my good cameras are, are old manual cameras, Nikons. Yeah. Stuff like that. Any, know? any thoughts of putting them into a book or something at some point? You know, yeah, <laughs> you're not the first person that's mentioned that. <laughs> I'm on Facebook, and I do. I I haven't done in a few weeks now, but I did a lot of these Throwback Thursdays, or mm-hmm. Flashback Friday, or so because I have this library of things, you know. And uh, someone said, "Yeah, I had to put this stuff in a book together," you know. And I think about it, and I go, "Yeah, well, you know, that's not a bad idea." But then I think about another friend of mine. I pale by comparison, and his archival stuff. And he's much more well-known and much more successful. Uh, John Rubenstein. I don't know if you know John Rubenstein. Not offhand. Not offhand. Um, he was the original Pippin. Mm. The musical Pippin. And right mm-hmm. now he's touring the country playing the role of Charlemagne, Pippin's father. Oh, wow. But very interesting how how he's come full circle. I saw the, the national tour production here at the Pantages Theater, Pantages Theater in L.A. Uh, just a few months ago, and John's absolutely fantastic. But I saw him do the original Pippin back in 1972 on Broadway. Wow. Matter of fact, uh, we played softball together in Central Park, and I got introduced to him through one of my classmates uh, at Juilliard who had gone to school with John at UCLA. Um, anyway... Um, John and I have been involved with many, many projects over the last 20 years here in L.A. and, and so on. And, and John is very eloquent in his writing and his his memorial tributes to people and friends pass away. Like he was, you know, and, and also it turns out he's 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 close friends with more people than I will ever know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, people that like Louis Jordan. He was good. I didn't know he was good friends with Louis Jordan. who just passed away. Um, and a number of other videos. But John has these pictures all the time, and he writes these memorials. Seven people tell him, John, when are you put together a book? Now, his book, I would buy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and his father, in case of the name, his father, you know, was Arthur Rubenstein, the classical pianist. 
anyway, so he's just a number friend. But I do have these pictures, and I do have, and people keep saying every time I post something up, it's great, you got to do that, because I put a whole bunch of stuff up. I have pictures, for example, of our picnic of that production of King Lear back in 1973. Oh, wow. So that's a lot of people there who were a lot younger back, <laughs> you know, out there today. And, uh, you know, I I post throwback Thursdays of, of some shots from Quantum Leap, as a matter of fact, too, on my Facebook page. So I'm thinking of the picture I had from Matlock. Another show I watched a lot when I was a teenager. Yeah, oh, I had a great part on Matlock. I was, I was, <laughs> I was the victim of the week. <laughs> I was the one that got murdered because I was such a, I won't use that word. <laughs> um, but you know, it's that it's that three letter word when you think of another word for donkey, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> followed by a four letter word. Mm-hmm. Combine that. So, but he's a real anyway. I played a talk show host. Oh, you know, I think I remember that. Yeah, and uh, they uh, suspected four different people of, of doing me in. Well, don't tell me who did it because I just might watch that again. Yeah, watch it again. No, I won't tell you who did it, but uh, <laughs> I I can say this, that Robert Shearer directed it. And Robert Shearer is one of the great all-time directors of television who did lots of live television back in the 50s and 60s. And so he had a blast shooting this because I was a talk show host. So in the sequences at the very beginning of the show, where it was the talk show, they, they showed some of the talk show who I was host of. And anything backstage was on film. And then anything in front of a camera, they videotaped. Mm-hmm. So it would switch back and forth. So it looked like it was a real talk show. You saw the videotape quality of it. My grandmother, who was about 90 at the time, lived in Florida, in Bradenton. You know where Bradenton is? Yeah, it's not too far from here. Yeah. Where are you at? Where are you at? Cape Coral. Oh, okay. Yeah, so my grandmother belonged to a church and stuff, and she had people would be still taking her to church in those days. And um, she wanted to make sure that she told people that her grandson was on this episode of Matlock. It was, it was during the week, and here's the time, and this is the station, and so on and so forth. So she told everybody, and she watched it, and she saw me. She goes to church the next week, and a couple of ladies came up to her and said, Well, Velma, we watched the TV. And your grandson wasn't on. And she said, well, yes, he was. <laughs> he was, too. I watched the show. No, he wasn't. We had it right on the... She said, you must have had the wrong station. Nope. <laughs> we had it on the station you gave us, and we had it right at the top of the hour there, and he wasn't there. It wasn't on. And she said, well, now, he was on. I watched it, and he was there. Velma, he wasn't. They had some talk show on. <laughs> Yep. That's funny. Yep. yep. <laughs> true, true, story. true story. Well, that meant it was a very believable talk show, right? It was very believable. <laughs> if, it, if it could fool viewers that tuned in yeah, to see it. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was very believable. Pretty good. Them. Even though you only might have done a couple of days on that episode, Seabride, you, you were in some great scenes. There's the fight scene at the wedding. What was that like? Oh, yeah, that was, that was, that was, that was great fun. That was great, great fun. Thank goodness both. John and I have had experience in uh, stage combat, although John's done probably a lot more of it than I ever was called on to do. So we were able to uh, pull that off without any uh, 
problems. You know, I can't remember a whole lot of specifics about it because the whole thing was so much fun to do. Uh, I remember being down in the uh, in the garbage area. Was that a set or was that in the ship? I believe I'm trying to think of where that was. I think that was a set. I think it was on the whole universe a lot, but there might have been some of it on the ship too. We didn't. I can't even remember how many days we did on the ship, but it seems to me I was there more than once. It seems to me I was there a number of days watching uh, Beverly in her wedding dress and everything. And that was the most fun was watching them do the dance stuff. You were right on the sidelines, so you pretty much had to watch them dance all day, right? I just had to watch them dance. It was great because Beverly is wonderful. And of course, Scott is a great musical comedy actor. He was you know, dance and moves and everything else, so... It was great fun to watch them. And what great fun to be able to do that stuff. It was just, it was great fun to watch them do that. And it was, uh, it was terrific. It just, it was such a fun, 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 fun thing to do. I mean, that was it. It was just a fun, fun, fun thing to do. Um, the whole show. <laughs> I wish I could help you out. I wish I could remember more specifics, but it has been a long time. 25 years, yeah. That's, that's understandable. Uh, do you remember uh, your character quoting Shakespeare and smoking a pipe or any of those things? Thing. Oh, yes, I do. I do. Oh, yes. And there, of course, somebody else who just passed away, too, by the way, in the last year or two, Louis Gus. He played my father. Okay, yeah. He passed away. That's sad. Yes, he just passed away. Huh. I say recently, I think within the last... Yeah, he stands up at the wedding, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yep, he does. He was great. Um, uh, yes. Oh, yes, I remember that. What was my line? I was trying to think of it earlier today. <laughs> Uh, which one? The one that I say to Scott when I have him tied up, threatening to do him in in the garbage dump. I don't remember. I just watched it right before we talked, and I don't remember. Yeah, and then he corrects me, and I say, whatever. It was a Shakespeare quote, though, I think. Yeah, Uh, and he corrects me. I say, hey, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) That part I remember. I can't remember the rest of it. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, is that it? What? No, no more questions? Well, we'll tell how long we've been talking. <laughs> an, hour, an hour and a quarter. Oh, my goodness. I appreciate you taking the time to do it. Oh, uh, my pleasure. I love doing things like this. Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> I love talking about me. What? I enjoyed talking to James Harper. It was like talking to a friend on the phone. We were just talking on the phone, but it seemed like I talked to him before on the phone and I was going to talk to him again. It was just a great time talking to him. Very interesting man. I could have spoke with him for hours more. So obviously not like his character. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) But uh, a lot of great insight and uh, a funny story. Yeah, I like the part about losing his car and thinking it was stolen. Who would have thought a red car plus a yellow streetlight equals gray? I wouldn't have known that. It's that white and gold dress thing again. Oh, what color was it? <laughs> this, this is a real thing. I, I just think it's a glitch in the Matrix. Mm. We totally just placed this episode in time. That's okay. Okay. When people listen to it, they'll be like, oh yeah, I remember that dress. And it was definitely white and gold. Yeah. And then blue and black. No. So weird. And we are also going to be playing the Beverly Leach interview right now. So for those of you who haven't heard it before, and for those of you who have, here is Beverly Leach. Beverly Leach is perhaps best known for her portrayal of Kate Monday on Square One TV's MathNet. 
Her other roles in her extensive television career include Babylon 5, Alienation, Star Trek Voyager, Northern Exposure, JAG, and Modern Family. She is also the author of Actor Muscle, Craft, Grit, Wit, a professional guide to the business of acting. But us Quantum Leap fans know her best as Katherine Farrington in the 21st episode of Season 2 of Quantum Leap, Seabride. Albie recently had the pleasure to speak with Beverly about Quantum Leap, her book, and career. This interview has a spoiler level of Seabride. And now here's Albie with Beverly Leach. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good. I'm uh, glad I get a chance to talk to you. I appreciate you doing this for us. No problem. I, I loved working on this show, so brought back a lot of good memories. Did you say you just watched it? I did. That's awesome. I did. It was, yeah, and uh, literally it, it brought back a lot of good memories. It was almost like it happened yesterday. Thank you for doing yeah. that. I know you have a book I think I saw on your Facebook. I do. I have a book. I started teaching a few years ago. I used to study with Stella Adler. And uh, she was a great influence on my life in terms of just teaching great acting. But she was also very dedicated to teaching other people. She was a great actress herself. And she used to talk a lot about passing it on to others. And um, a few years ago, I started teaching and uh, I got picked to develop a curriculum at an academy for the business of acting because I'm still a working actor. And uh, so I developed this curriculum and I realized that only those 50 kids were getting it. You know, and I thought, well, this would be this would be a great, you know, business manual for young students, young actors who are either new to the market in Los Angeles and are working their way up or other graduates at other schools. So I went ahead and I I fleshed it out and I made it into a book. And it's it's a very good. It's a very relevant and uh, very helpful to people. And my big objective was to make sure that they they whatever whatever part of the building of the career they were engaged in was to make sure that they they did it the most efficient way possible and the most professional way possible because there's a lot of uh, uh, bad moves you can make in the beginning that will lose you a lot of time, sometimes years of time, you know, especially if you get signed to the wrong kind of agent or manager and stuff. And there's a lot of scam artists out there too, a lot, a lot of scam artists. And they sound good, they talk a good game, but they're not really there to um, help the actor become a, a working professional. So I just wanted to give them a a good boost. You know? <laughs> What's your book called? It's called Actor Muscle, Craft, Grit, Wit, A Professional Guide to the Business of Acting. Where can people get that? They can get it on Amazon. All right. Yeah. How are you doing today, by the way, Albie? I'm doing good. I got you. Okay. <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm excited to talk to you. Like I said, I just watched, let's see, I watched Quantum Leap, of course, a couple times, and then I watched some other things you're in, uh, Star Trek Voyager and Alien Nation and Babylon 5. Oh, my God. <laughs> Alien Nation. <sighs> I forgot all about that one. <laughs> I had seen them all before, but, uh, you know, I just wanted them to be fresh in my brain so we could talk about them, maybe. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Whatever you want. And what else did you watch besides Alienation and Star Trek? About three months ago, I watched MathNet. God bless you. I love doing that show, too. That was, yeah, you know, if I had five top shows, uh, Quantum Leap and MathNet, it's definitely in the top five, without question. I loved that. When I was a teenager, probably older than the demographic was supposed to be, but I, I did watch Square One and I watched MathNet. I loved MathNet. I had no idea Dragnet ever existed. I just thought it was MathNet. I didn't even realize it was like taken after something, but I always loved it. I did too. And you, that's funny that you said that. You were older than the demographic, but I used to get fan letters from adults. And the magic of that show came from the writers, you know? 
the writers used to be uh, great comedic writers. They did Sid Caesar, Show of Shows. They wrote. They did vaudeville. So they they really had a great sense of adult comedy, and they knew how to sort of lay it in there and still teach the kids something. So that's why it was such a, a fan favorite with adults, too, because they sort of got the jokes that the kids didn't. It was really, really fun to work on. It still seems pretty popular. Uh, like I said, a few months ago, I watched it, and I watched it on YouTube, and each of the episodes are getting like eight to 12,000 hits. So people like Isn't it. Isn't that great? Yeah. I know. It's still, it's still, yeah, I was, I, I felt very fortunate to have worked on that show. We didn't get paid very much money for it, mm. but I loved, loved doing it. You don't do those shows for the money. You do it because it's good. You know that it's going to be helpful and it's super fun to, you know, show up to work every day and wonder what, what's going to happen next. So the casting of it was great, too, because they were able to, to stunt cast a lot of really big stars at the time to come in and play those characters. And a lot of them are still stars now. So, Are you good at math? Or did you learn anything from that? <laughs> did it teach me anything? Yes. Uh, yes, it taught me a lot. Um, of, I was good in math. I didn't, I didn't get past, I didn't stay good in math, though. I, I made pretty good grades in algebra and geometry, so it wasn't that hard for me to understand the concepts of the show. But in college, I went into trigonometry and statistics and probability and all that, and I just was lost, absolutely <laughs> lost. I got through chemistry by the skin of my teeth. In fact, I didn't like the grade I got in it, and um, I took chemistry again because I've, I was always very stubborn about my grades being... Um, up there, and I got—I think I got a low C, and I, I went, "That's no good." So I took it over again, and I got a B the next semester. But yeah, I've, I have a lot of uh, tenacity. I'm willing to learn, but statistics and, and trigonometry—too much for me. Couldn't get there. How about you? Oh, uh, not very good at math, which was weird that I liked watching Square One and learning about math, even though I really am not good at it. It's like not a talent of mine, but. Well, that's the other magic of the show is that they figured out a way to open it up for people who, th who thought, uh, I can't do this, you know? I'm sure I learned a lot. I, I know the Fibonacci sequence episode. <laughs> I, I can't get that out of my brain. So <laughs> That's good. That's good. Quantum Leap. Yes. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about your experience filming it? Working on Quantum Leap was one of the highlights of my career because it really, it really allowed me to use the best of myself as a person, as an actress, use of my background and my training. I had uh, been a professional dancer for many, many years. I was classically trained. I did modern dance for a while, and then I segued into musical theater. And the, the heart of this show that I recognized immediately was that it had a great balance. It really required a lot of uh, physical agility, not just for the tango sequence, but the physical comedy. I mean, I just saw the physicality of it, the comedic moments layered into all of the dramatic scenes. So I had those abilities because of my background in training in dance and musical theater. And I still had to be very committed to the dramatic aspects of this, you know, love-torn couple but there were moments that were specifically written for the humor. And um, it's very rare that I get a role that allows me to play like that and also play as a romantic lead uh, with the heartbreak and the sort of ability to transcend my ego. I mean, the character was so spoiled and so rich and so shallow at one point. And 
the lessons of love and heartbreak allowed her to grow up, you know, and and speak up and have a voice and and admit when she was wrong and do it without humiliation. She learned how to be humble. She learned how to um, feel a lot of pain, and she learned how to deepen as a woman. I mean, I really loved that, that there were places where you really saw how spoiled and and uh, dismissive she was, and yet in the bridal chamber scene between her and her mother and her sister, there was this ability to uh, go deeper and find a, a more of a woman, a gentler side, um, a wiser. She gained some wisdom in this experience, and um, so there was a lot of uh, components in it, and I think that Deborah did a great job writing it. One of the producers, uh, Deborah Pratt, Deborah Pratt was the writer of this show, and she told me afterwards that she was so happy that I was cast in this because I did it exactly as she had imagined it, you know. So as a woman, speaking to another woman, I was just running on instinct and intuition and doing everything that uh, Stella had taught me to do to invest myself in the uh, dramatic content of it and allow my heart to break. Um, There was, I also have a, a great fascination for all of the old uh, movies like Philadelphia Story and things like that. And there were elements of that in it. So it was a great big playground for someone like me. And I've always loved, loved comedy. I find that my strong suit. And yet I needed, I had some dramatic chops. So it was, it was great. It was really, really great. Um, Dean Stockwell and Scott Bakula were great gentlemen on set. The greatest. Really top-notch professionals, always authentic, always in the moment, and embraced me as a guest star. There's a there's a certain kind of um, landscape that, that a guest star wanders into, <laughs> and they're not always welcome guests to the party. <laughs> it's like, do your job and go home, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, they were... Um, they were very inviting, uh, very respectful of everyone on the set. I learned a lot from them as well, watching them, because they were series regulars, you know, and I've been on a lot of different sets. And series regulars tend to um, act like movie stars, you know, and they don't have time, and they, they have a kind of invisible wall between themselves and other people. Uh, but um, Scott and Dean treated everyone exactly the same, and I noted that. They treated the extras with as much respect and dignity as they did the producers and the director, and I love that. I love it when I see that in in a leading man. I really do. The wardrobe you wore in this episode was amazing. You look stunning in it. Um... Jean-Pierre Dorliac. Jean-Pierre Dorliac. Can I just kind of get on my knees and build a shrine to him? (laughs) He built all of those costumes, especially for me, from the ground up. I did. I I don't think I've ever looked that good before or since. I was I was truly lovely in that in that episode. And he made sure that I was. And I was so nervous about it, too, because I had I had just given birth to a baby. I mean, I was she was nine months old. Wow. But. Oh yeah, and I but I was still nursing her, and so I was kind of nervous about, you know, I, I I see the episode and I know that I was slender, but at the time, I knew that I used to be smaller than that, and so I was concerned that I wouldn't look good in my wardrobe because there was the swimsuit, there was the tango number, there was all sorts of things going on, and um, I was a little shy about exposing myself. Um, 
after Kate's birth. My that's my daughter, Kate. And uh, yet he he made me look like a million bucks. Oh, he's uh, he's great. He's just the greatest. And no, we we've stayed in touch all these years. We we swap uh, phone calls and Christmas cards and emails every once in a while. He's great. He's one of the greatest costume designers I've ever worked with. Yes, beautiful dresses. Uh, even the swimsuit, the robe was stunning. <laughs> uh, the peach robe was beautiful, wasn't it? Yes. I found everything to be so lovely. At the end scene with at the wedding. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I looked better in that scene than I did at my own wedding. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I just watched the episode twice, and you shouldn't have worried about anything because I couldn't tell you ever had a baby watching that. Thank you for saying that. I, I felt that I felt that relief afterwards. But that's also in part to uh, Jean Pierre. He made sure that all the cuts and the biases were just so, so that it always um, sort of enhanced my better uh, my better aspects and um, covered up the rest. <laughs> but thank you. You said you named your daughter Kate. Was that after your character on MathNet? Everybody asked me that. No, no, actually, uh, it's just um, serendipity that, that it worked out that way. My grandmother's name was Catherine. So her name is Catherine, so I named her after my uh, my mamo, we called her. But, um, yeah, she's named after my grandmother, my father's mother. Those kisses between you and Scott Bakula, two of them in this episode. Most leading ladies only get one if they're lucky. You got two. How were those like? What was that like? <laughs> um... They were delicious. <laughs> they were delicious. Um, Scott's a very good actor, very, very good actor, and I am too. And, and to a certain extent, you have to uh, believe in the story. You know, it's it's not just memorizing your lines and, and painting an emotional wash on top of it. If you do your work as an actor, uh, you build up uh, an incredible history so that I can believe that I am that character and he is that man that I've I've loved my entire life, perhaps for eternity, you know. So there's a belief system that you have to fall into, and uh, it helped the kissing scenes. It just did. We never rehearsed. We never talked about it before. Um, we're both good actors that way, where we don't try to, you know, make it work. And it just, there was just a natural... I think um, I think we were lucky. We were like pieces of a puzzle that that uh, sort of found each other and just happened to fit. The opening teaser with uh, the kiss and the slap. Mm-hmm. I did that once. I got one take on it. Wow. Uh, mainly because I got it the first time. If you really nail a scene the first time, they just say. Uh, cut, print, and moving on. <laughs> so, uh, and that was actually the first time we ever met. That was our first day of yeah, shooting. That's funny. <laughs> so he was very surprised. Um, you know, we we did block it for camera, but I never kissed him and I never slapped him. It definitely worked because uh, one minute into the episode, you're laughing. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, and he was very relieved that we only had to do it in one take because I really, I really clobbered him. I didn't, <laughs> I wanted it to count, you know, the slap afterwards, not the kiss. I don't mean I <laughs> clobbered him with the kiss. <laughs> and, uh, but the scene afterwards, that's the kind of comedy I love to do. Hiding, getting into the closet and then falling out. Were you in the closet long uh, on that shooting day? No, 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 it's just edited to look as if I've been in there forever. 
you know, it's acted and then edited, you know, so we, we did several takes of me falling out different ways and things like that and recovering from that and, and uh, being pushed into the, the closet different ways. It was so much fun. That kind of goofy stuff, that shtick is right up my alley really is most of that it looked to me like sets was any of it on uh like a real ship or location like the pool or anything yes a lot of that okay so the opening teaser all of that i believe most of this was shot on the queen mary oh wow yeah most of it was we went down to long beach and and shot on the queen mary like the tango i believe and the pool scene was also on the queen mary I think the, a lot of the other places, though, were built on the Universal lot. You just caught me with that one. I think, because I remember traveling to Universal a lot for this. So I'm thinking a lot of them were just sort of um, patterned after chambers in the Queen Mary, because I think they were tight quarters and there wasn't enough room for the camera. Mm-hmm. So the set designer designed it, just took a just took a, a cabin from the Queen Mary and just redesigned it and had it built on the Universal lot so there would be room for cameras and they could take walls down if they needed to turn around and have more room to move. Now, interestingly enough, the garbage scene in the bowels of the ship where they're trying to kill him and they throw him into the trash and he's trying to scramble out before he goes into the water, right. that was entirely built on the Universal lot. Hmm. Entirely built. They even had a water tank around the trash bin with the operating doors to mimic the water. So every time it cuts to waters, the water's whooshing out. That was all built on the Universal lot. Wow. They used that. Yeah. Yeah. It was very exciting. Very, it was an enormous structure. It really was huge. So kudos to them. But uh, back to the pool scene in terms of the, the kiss, you know, I talked about the fun of the kiss and the slap, but um, there was that that really hard scene at the pool, speaking of the pool. Um, that was a that was a tough scene. That was a tough scene. And the kisses, uh, I believe, were part of what I was talking about in terms of believing in the tragedy of me, our self-belief and believing in the tragedy of this couple, you know. Um, it was pretty steamy, and it was very heartbreaking. I, I actually remember having to prep for that. That was a tough scene for me to do. Um because I think it's my obligation as an actor to to really believe that I am who the script says I am. And um, when you work that deep in, in terms of heartbreak and loss and romance and unrequited love, uh, there's a certain price that an actor pays, you know. Uh, we don't get off easy. We don't get off easy at all. Uh, it took me a, actually a couple of weeks to sort of shed that um, sadness. I was very, very sad before and after those scenes. So I didn't think about it in terms of being sexy. I thought about it in terms of in eternal, eternal love, eternal loss, and also um, the kind of growing pains that a spoiled, rotten brat, full of self-righteous indignation. You know, she has to, she has to sort of learn her life lessons, her soul lessons, right there in, in front of him and in front of you as the audience. Um, so it was, it felt, I remember how, I, I know why it was so hard because I felt everything all at once, you know, it was hot, it was steamy, it was love, it was very romantic. I had pride, I had ego, I had humility and humiliation, you know, it was, uh, loss, 
um, heartbreak. You know, you have to feel all of those things in, in one scene. So that's why it was tough. But I had to pull on my big boy pants if I was going to play with the big boys. Job well done, I'd say. Thank you. I appreciate that. Could you tell me a little bit about working with some of your co-stars, uh, John Hertzler and uh, Juliet Sorcy? Juliet Sorcy. Oh, darling girl. Oh, my gosh. I loved my scenes with her. I just, she was so much fun to work with. She was great. Just loved her. And the guy who played my father, a Weathers Farrington, his J.G. Hertzler. Right. <laughs> it's hard for me to say his last name. Yeah, me too. It's okay. He's a great actor, really great actor. I didn't actually get to spend much time with him um, because the the scene that we shot in the cabin where he's, um, you know, convincing me to marry Vinny the Viper and all of that stuff, uh, he's, he's just a pro. He shows up, he throws down, he goes home. And there was a lot of people on set, and they were they were really working at a, at a quick pace. So I didn't get to spend much downtime with him, but I admire him very, very much as an on-camera actor and as a voiceover actor. He's got a beautiful voice, doesn't he? Yes, he does. That, I recognized his voice before I recognized his face, because I'm used to him from his many Star Trek roles, where he usually wears a lot of prosthetics. Exactly. Exactly. His voice is gorgeous. And, and it turns out he's gorgeous in real life, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Speaking of, you did a Voyager episode, and uh, you wore some prosthetics. What was that experience like for you? I loved working on that show. Well, Ron Glass was incredibly handsome, very impressive in his acting technique. You know, he's truly Shakespearean in size in terms of his depth as an actor and as a man. He's really Shakespearean. He's like a, he's like a King Lear. You know, he's a king. He's a king. And he has a, a great uh, depth to him. You know, Maya Angelou has great depth to her and mm -hmm. dignity to her. And Ron Glass has that kind of depth and dignity to him as well. And so it was a pleasure to also watch him work because he was always so very calm and yet uh, focused, focused like a hot iron. He was great. I learned from everybody that I work with. You know, we play two aliens who are aboard a ship, and, and we would pretend to be medical personnel. And he's actually the captain, and I'm his ensign. And my experience working on that was I was totally excited to work with LeVar Burton, who was directing that episode. So that was the big kiss for me, working on Star Trek. Was, I was a big fan of LeVar Burton. The experience of working on that was um, also pretty wonderful. Uh, it's you know, when you get into a show and um, a franchise like that, um, it's got its own engine, and they have a certain way of working. I was a little nervous that they were going to put me in full prosthetics, and I was very relieved that they didn't. So um, they just had that nose piece and the little um, chin piece around the side. It was it was great working on that show. They they work like a uh, a perfectly timed clock. So that's what I meant about the working on a franchise like that. They have a method, and you have to work at their pace. You have to work on their level. You have to make sure that you listen to everything because they almost don't have to uh, explain everything thoroughly because they've they've been doing it such a long time and so well. They almost know exactly what the other person wants before they say it. So as a guest star, I really had to pay attention to the um, unspoken signals as well as the uh, spoken direction, so that I didn't cause any time problems. You need, they they work on a certain shooting schedule, and you have to you have to bring your product in on time. I was really really pleased with it. Uh, Lavar Burton is a terrific guy, really terrific guy. 
I wish I had more to say about, although I have seen it, uh, Nightingale, that episode of Nightingale recently. I don't have as many memories of that because most of the time was spent in the prosthetics chair. And then as soon as I was ready, they threw me on set. We shot the scene and then I, I went back to the trailer. It was kind of a closed set, if I remember correctly. They didn't want a lot of people there. I guess, you know, there's a lot of shows that are so high profile, they like to have a closed set in order to um, sort of keep their storylines a secret. Makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. How did that differ then uh, from when you did the voiceover work for the Star Trek video game? That was fun. The Laxus, that was actually very hard. You know, I'd done a lot of voiceover work and ADR work, mostly. And I thought that this would be really easy to do, but, you know, the games have their own kind of um, style and timing. You know, when you do a, a commercial, you know that you need 17 seconds for a 30-second spot. You know, you have to get things in in 11 seconds or 17 seconds and things like that. With the games, uh, they had their own timing, and because I didn't have a visual to work off of, it was actually very, very difficult to do. So, unfortunately, I wasn't as capable um, in that sort of job as, I, as I'd as i liked to have been, I think. I think it, I might be too hard on myself at this point. You mentioned uh, commercials, and uh, congratulations, I saw you just did a Taco Bell commercial. Could you tell me a little bit about that? I'm kind of excited for that because I love Taco Bell. Well, I just signed um, a non-disclosure agreement, so I can't talk about it. All right. I can't. Uh, yeah, the commercial life is now also because they're also stealing from each other. Did you know oh, that? No, I had no idea. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of of uh, stealing going on. They they And if they can produce their commercial, if they can steal from one commercial um, a campaign, but get it produced first, then they get credit for presenting the idea. Uh-huh. So, for instance, uh, I can talk about Microsoft, the Nokia Windows Phone okay. a campaign I did last year, mm-hmm. and I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. That I, and they would give me the copy to do for the audition, and they would immediately take it away, and I would have to <laughs> sign a non-disclosure agreement every time I left the audition. Wow. I wasn't allowed to talk to about it with anyone, and then even after the shoot, I wasn't allowed to talk about it or share photos on Facebook until after the commercial aired. And sure enough, you know, uh, the second one I did for for Nokia uh, was uh, called The Recital, and it was all these parents at a children's recital, and you see the the grade school stage and the curtains open, all of that stuff. Right after that aired, about three other commercials, three other products came out using parents at a children's recital. And there have been movies and other uh, TV shows that have routinely stolen uh, storyline ideas from each other. So the big shows now, uh, all scripts are confidential. They don't let them out to you unless you're going in for a producer session. They never release them, not even sides. Uh, You have to get them directly from the casting office. It used to be you could watch television and you would see one show on CBS, another one on NBC, and another one on cable. And the original storyline might be about a sick cow and a lost boy, you know. And sure enough, on on the other two networks, there would be a story about a sick cow and a lost boy. Hmm. And that's because they used to post the scripts and the sides online for the actors to get to audition. And so that meant it was uh, accessible to anyone. 
so if they were at a loss on another network about a storyline, they would just read the other network stuff and try to and try to produce a script with that, with those characters or storyline, and and uh, come out with it first. That's happened with movies too. So it's now part of the fabric of the commercial life as well. So I am, I just wrapped out a Taco Bell commercial. It was directed by Rick Lemoyne and um, the production company was Moxie Pictures. I can tell you things like that. It's all part of the new new food things that they're unveiling at uh, Taco Bell. You mm. know, like the waffle, egg waffle right. breakfast. Very good. But now they have a, yeah, so they have a new, they have a new product that's coming out in Taco Bell and that's why I can't talk about it. Okay. Well, I don't want to get you in trouble. No, you won't get me in trouble. Okay. I just can't, uh, but that's, I had to sign a non-disclosure. Isn't that crazy? Well, it makes sense. Millions of dollars at stake, really. Yeah, and they're spending millions of dollars, so they just want to make it count. You know, <laughs> they don't want somebody else to steal their idea. So, yeah, but I had a good time on that, too. It was really fun. Good. Um, I look forward to seeing it. Yeah. Can I ask you about Rita Allen Poe? Oh, yes, you may. You had mentioned that uh, you were a little self-conscious in the outfits on uh, Quantum Leap, but you didn't seem self-conscious in that episode. You were swimming in the pool. Yeah. Um, I didn't seem self-conscious, but I was. I cried before and after those pool scenes. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? There's so many Hollywood actresses out there who go, take off my top. Absolutely. Don't I have a nice rack? Look at these <laughs> babies, you know, mm-hmm. who let the dogs out. I've I've always had um, a kind of sense of um, modesty about me. It's been it's always been really difficult for me to um, be exposed in that way, and I don't know why. I don't know why that is. It's just sort of natural to me, um, and I, I don't think I'll ever get over it. I'm you know I'm pretty up there in dog years now, and I'm still modest, shy about that. The working on Alien Nation was quite a different experience. Uh, from the others, this is where um, me not knowing a show sort of caused trouble for me. Uh, actors really need to, and this is where I learned this lesson, by the way. I talk about it in the book as well, about knowing the show. They cast me because I was right for the role, and I did a good job with the role. I think I did okay. Yes. I was good enough. You know, I didn't embarrass myself. I think I did a good job, and, and I hit the notes that I wanted to hit, but I didn't know the show. I hadn't watched it. I'd seen some billboards, so I was I was cast for the role, and I was right for the role, etc., but I didn't understand the style of the show. I didn't understand the actors. I didn't understand the scripts, so that one was a hard one, and it was a really good life lesson as an actress for me that if I'm going to work on a show, I really need to watch episodes. I need to read all interviews and copy that I can find, you know, press releases, things like that. Um, thank God for the Internet. Back then, we didn't have the Internet, so I couldn't do that much research. We didn't have DVRs. We didn't have, you know, DirecTV where you could um, save the shows. Remember remember the old days when you had to, like, uh, set your VCR yes. on a timer yes. to catch it? So, and so it, was, it was one of those instances where I felt like I was flying blind the whole time. But I learned a huge lesson from it. And ever since that show, professionally as an actress, I always... Always watch the show. I read about the writers, especially. I look at their other work. I look at their movies. I uh, familiarize myself with the other cast members because I really need to follow. Each show has its own kind of style, like a thumbprint, and it belongs to them. 
and you don't know the pacing or the timing or the tone unless you invest of yourself in that. So what it was like for me to work on the show was the show people were fine. They were very fine to me. Um, it was business as usual. Uh, they were lovely to me. Uh, I didn't get to spend much time with the cast members. I just had to show up and do my job and go home. It was kind of uh, detached in that way. I think that if I had been more familiar with things, I would have personally felt more comfortable stepping in into that setting. But that bad was on me. The director was great. And the writing was, uh, I thought, was really fun. And I haven't played, I remember one line from that show where I decided to be a little Marilyn Monroe-ish. And it always made me giggle just a little bit to see. <laughs> I think when I'm sunning myself at the pool and I've got sunglasses on, I okay. don't know. It's yeah. big, I'm getting a flash on that right now. I have a little silly question about alienation. I have a theory uh, on this podcast as we, we go along. When there's a episode with a mystery in it, the red herring always seems to be someone with red hair. Uh, were you cast because of your red hair in that, or was that talked about in Alienation because you were sort of a red herring and you had red hair? Wah, wah. <laughs> I see. Um, no, I think it probably... I believe I had the red hair left over from another show I did. It was Sledgehammer. Ah, yes. Love that show. Yeah, I love that show, too. It was funny. Alan Spencer. What, a, what Funny. What a genius. Yes, Alan Spencer. He's the best. Um, they had dyed my hair red for that episode, and I still had it. Uh, and sometimes they ask you to go back to your other color, and mm -hmm. I was a blonde before I did Sledge. And um, I think they just asked me to keep it. They said it worked. Let's keep it. Okay. Yeah. I think it would just sort of worked out that way. I don't think it was on purpose. It just, it was a great show to work on. I'm a big science fiction fan. I also loved working on Babylon 5. My dad was especially happy that I was working on these science fiction shows because my dad was a huge science fiction fan. And so <laughs> I've worked on a lot of sci-fi. I'm just sort of racking them up in my head going, oh, yeah, you have. You're a part of this culture. You're a part of this genre. And it's a good one to be a part of because I'm also a science fiction fan. That's awesome. Yeah. As you can tell, maybe I am too. Um, <laughs> I can see that. Babylon 5, uh, what was that like for you? Was that going to be a recurring role or did they tell you maybe? It was. It was going to be a recurring role. And then Bruce Boxleitner was my brother. And I was sort of introduced as his, I think his sister. And um, I think something happened offset. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't about what was happening on, at the studio or on, on the set. It had to do with things happening off camera, mm -hmm. uh, in, in other people's lives, other places. And I think things just got sort of sidetracked, but I loved working with him. He was, uh, he was a lovely guy, really easy going. I felt like he was my brother. Mm. I, I was, and I was playing his sister. So it, it works out, doesn't it? Yes, it works out. <laughs> He was a uh, lovely, down-to-earth guy, treated me. He was very generous with his time and his camera time. Yeah, he was stand-up guy, very, very good stand-up guy. It's good to hear. Uh, very good episode, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Is there any funny stories or anything that happened on the set that uh, our listeners might like to hear about during their filming of Quantum Leap? I, I don't know about funny stories, but my favorite line of dialogue, I thought the best line came from Dean Stockwell in the first scene when he calls my father a pompous nozzle. <laughs> that was the best. That was really the best. Um, here's a, also a piece of trivia. James Harper, the guy who plays uh, Vincent Loggia, right. Vinny the Viper, he and I are great friends. 
Oh, really? Yeah, and he's a great guy. Oh, my gosh. We both have big uh, theater backgrounds. I think a funny story, well, of course, my very favorite scene was the tango. And that was the most fun to work on because I, I had all this dance background. And, of course, Scott Bakula is, is an incredible dancer and, and entertainer himself, which uh, is always helpful. So that I think that was the most fun. That was the one I was the most excited about. The second favorite was probably the kiss and slap scene and then going in and out of the closet. That was the most fun. Let me see. I'm trying to think of good stories. You're going to think I'm a a cuckoo about this, but I am going to go ahead and just say it. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but it's said that the pool at the Queen Mary is haunted. And there were times that, you remember when I said that the, the pool scene was very, very hard to do? Right. There were times that that was also contributing to why it was so hard to do the scene because uh, the energy would shift in there, and I'm kind of sensitive to that. <laughs> and I didn't see anything. It's not like I, I saw anything, but I felt things. And it would it sort of threw my focus a little bit. There were just unfriendly areas to stand in. How does that sound? It sounds so, right. Does it sound right? Yes. <laughs> I hope I don't sound like I'm nuts. But So when I'm standing at a certain point, you know, off off camera to make an entrance or um, at a certain point of the stairway to go up it and, and do coverage and things like that, there were just unfriendly areas, not the entire pool area, but there were places that I was required to stand in to wait for a, an on-screen entrance or exit, and, um, and it just felt... Uh, felt it felt hard to get through, and uh, that was I found very interesting. And I didn't even know that they considered it haunted until after that scene was shot, because there were some takes that I was in the middle of, and I would suddenly go up on my lines for no apparent reason. I mean, I knew the scene; I'd done all my work. Uh, Scott Bakula and I were working beautifully together. There was no reason for me to suddenly forget my lines. That's what going up on your lines means. Um, or I would feel something different than I was, what I was supposed to feel, like um, aggressive. There was, <laughs> there was a couple of scenes that I just cut myself. You know, I went, I'm not going to go on. Can we cut this and let me start over? Uh, because all of a sudden, something inappropriate would jump into, you know, my feelings, my emotions. And it felt very aggressive, like I wanted to hit somebody. Wow. And I thought, no, I can't. <laughs> That doesn't belong in this scene. So I'm not going to move on because I don't want the editor to ever use anything that's not going to be useful to him. Mm-hmm. So that only happened once or twice. And standing in unfriendly areas uh, only happened maybe three times. Uh, so most of the scene, most of those hours were spent, uh, were well spent, and they were very productive and, and very uh, beautiful to work on. And then there were these these rare things that sort of like would skid into the scene, sort of. And I go, where did that come from? You know. So, uh, but that was it. I hope your your audience doesn't think I'm um, cuckoo about that. But years later, I did see this program where they claimed that you know the pool area at the Queen Mary was haunted, and I went, well, that must have been it. How interesting! Is very that? interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Right. Um, are you a, a ghost hunter fan? I've never had any experiences myself. But our our next episode of Quantum Leap has to do with a ghost. Oh really? Yeah. Great. I think I think that's it. I think I have I think I have lots of interesting uh, things. I I glow when I think about the the tango scene. 
Yeah, it was amazing. It was. And, and uh, it's the one and only time I've really, I think I've ever been given the opportunity to dance on screen. Maybe Dancing with the Stars in the future? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, the other thing that's sort of, sort of kitschy trivia is that Patricia Hardy, the woman who played my mother, she and I studied with Stella Adler at the same time. Wow. Yeah. And um, I don't know if you knew this about Joe Napolitano, the director of that. Do you know anything about him? No, not at all. Joe Napolitano was a, a very, very capable director, very serious about his work. He's like most uh, good directors. Comedy is very serious business, you know, and he was on top of everything, listened to his actors beautifully. But what's interesting about Joe Napolitano is that he's really worked with some big, big directors like Brian De Palma and Scarface and Untouchables and uh, Terry Gilliam in The Fisher King. And he was always their first assistant director, first AD, which is actually a very powerful position on the set. And it's said that first ADs learn to direct, but they mostly learn to produce in that position. And uh, they really know how to run a set. So he was a very strong first AD and worked with some great, big, huge directors. So I know he was gifted and had great ideas coming in. And I, th I believe that since then, he's become a producer on some level, too. So that uh, that was an interesting trajectory for me, um, listening to his stories about Brian De Palma and working on The Untouchables and things like that. He was a cool guy. He was a really cool guy. So uh, good to work with. Good to work with. Very good to work with. Um, it was a strong choice for that episode, definitely. So overall, very positive experience on Quantum Leap? Very positive. Very, very positive, yes. Do you do many sci-fi conventions? I don't. I've never been invited. I remember going to some Quantum Leap conventions uh, a couple of times. Yeah, they invited us and, and uh, brought us out uh, a couple of times, but it was specific to Quantum Leap. But I haven't ever been invited to the sci-fi conventions. What character do you get recognized for the most? The most? Um, well, Quantum Leap, obviously. Uh, Star Trek. And, you know, I still get hits on uh, the Babylon 5 and uh, Alien Nation, which is kind of a stretch. I'm always surprised when people bring up Alien Nation, so <laughs> you probably heard that in my voice. <laughs> um, but mostly Star Trek and, and Quantum Leap. Sci-fi fans are very loyal, so they'll, they'll remember someone from their favorite episode or something. They're very, very loyal, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about your book? Oh, yes. My book is called Actor Muscle, Craft, Grit, Wit, A Professional Guide to the Business of Acting. It's a book that's been specifically engineered to help young actors enter the market, whether they're graduating from um, a theater or film program or just new actors who move to the Los Angeles market. And each chapter is laid out sort of in a sequential order. And it gives you the most up-to-date protocols on how to build your career. So, it's, you know, some actors don't get their pictures and resumes put together, but they still list online with... Actors Access and Casting Frontier and all these different places where you need to self-submit until you get an agent, but you can't self-submit without a picture and resume. So there's tons and tons of actors who don't know what comes first. But, you know, you have to do the next indicated thing, and how do you do that? And so I, I explained to them how to uh, choose a photographer, how to choose the right photographer, what they're looking for, what kind of picture uh, or an actor what an agency is looking for. So you have to sort of tailor your taste uh, spend your money well and do it with a, with an eye for the future. So a lot of time is spent in the first opening chapters that has a game plan attached to it. 
some kids just come here and they just say, I just want to be a star. I just want to be an actor. But they really don't know what to do. That's sort of a big, big picture with a fuzzy outline. It's not very clear or pragmatic. So I start with a game plan of what you need to do first and how to do it in terms of getting yourself set up. And then as you get deeper and deeper into your career, each chapter is a sequential step. So once you get your picture and resume together and you get listed online, you start self-submitting and build your resume, uh, you start collecting tape on yourself, and then you can start looking for an agent because an agent's not going to sign anybody without uh, some road wear on them. They need to have a good they need to have a good resume. And so how do you find an agent? I teach them how to find an agent, what to do in an agency interview and what not to do in an agency interview too. I do that too. I also talk about self taping, self submissions, things like that. I also talk about the agency and manager contracts. That seems to be a huge scary mystery for a lot of actors and there's a great detail and it's an in depth conversation about what the difference is between an agent and a manager, what the contract looks like, what a bad contract looks like, and what a good contract looks like, and what to expect and, and how to negotiate that for yourself if you if you don't like what it says. And then I talk a lot about scams, uh, what to look for, what are the earmarks for it, because there's a lot of them out there. And there's a lot of bad teachers out there, too. Uh, teachers are just as, as likely to be scam artists as um, as agents. And, um, you know, big glowing want ads that say, have your own reality show, experience not needed. <laughs> <laughs> Models, actors, wanted, no experience necessary. You know, there's still that going on. And so the, the book is very practical. It's only 164 pages. It's very detailed. It has step-by-step in sequence actions for each actor to take. It even has things like how to do a cover letter and how to, to uh, get the attention of, a, of an agent through a package and things like that. A lot of actors make a terrible mistake by only emailing agents their picture and resume when the truth is only 2%, maybe 4% of agents accept email submissions which is odd because the internet is so prevalent. Everybody thinks that's the fastest, easiest, and cheapest way to do it. But most of their listings in the call sheet and uh, other agency handbooks, it very clearly says headshot and resume by mail only. Do not email. And the actors aren't paying attention and they email and, and they wonder why they're not getting a response. So there's a lot of attention given to doing a proper package to an agent what to say in the cover letter, how to do that, how your resume and picture should look, and, um, you know, all of that. It's all about a professional presentation. And there's nothing like getting that from a working actor. People just say, that's so old-fashioned. Nobody does hard, hard copy submissions anymore, and that's not true. I know what agents want, and I, recently I went through an agency shift myself, and so I put my money where my mouth was. And I only sent out 12 packages and every single interview I had with an agent, each and every one of them said, I was so happy to get your hard copy package. I was so happy that it wasn't an email. <laughs> we tell them not to send an email and they still email <laughs> us. You know? So it, it makes a difference. But you got to know how to make it look pretty and you got to know how to, to be professional and brief about it. You know, Sounds like a very useful tool for people that dream to be an actor. 
It is, actually. And, uh, you know, I've only had it out for a couple of years, and I self-published it, which um, was my desire to do. I just sort of wanted to uh, put it out there. And as it turns out, a lot of colleges have started buying it this year for their graduating students. I sent out free review copies to a lot of California universities with a letter suggesting that their theater graduates or their film graduates might benefit from this book. And I sent to each head of the department a free review copy. And I've in May, I had a ton of orders from different universities as sort of a parting gift for their graduates. Uh, so I guess they read it and said, yes, it is. This is a professional. This is a professional manual. This is all legit. And um, a couple of other, let me see, Samuel French picked it up. Drama Books in New York picked it up. Uh, another dramatics magazine that heads uh, EDTA, it's an educational theater association. They also um, bought up a, a bunch of those and they sell those to actors who come in and just buy it off the shelf. So it's it's there to be helpful. I'm not here to make a million bucks on this. I'm here to be helpful. And I can teach artistry one-on-one in person, which is the way it should be done, acting, uh, training, and things like that uh, from Stella. But in terms of professional protocol, that can be learned from a book. You know, just keep it on your bedside. It it works in every situation for every level of career too. You said to say a few words, and I just went right off on that. No, that's I? great. You're you're doing great. <laughs> okay. Okay. Before we go, is there anything we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? I am always surprised and always honored by the fans who support me. I guess it's not that I don't think so much of myself. I just try not to think of myself a lot. <laughs> I try to take it one day at a time, and and um, stay easygoing and down to earth. And it always um, humbles me and pleases me all at the same time that I have fans. I have fans that support me and and I support them. And it means that I'm, I, might, I might be doing something right. And that's, that's a good mission to have in life, I think, is to um, use my gifts for good and not evil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to ask you a question okay. about that. Sounds good. I have a theory about why science fiction is so fascinating to people and why they have such a lifelong attachment to it and why they're such diehard fans. What's your theory? Why do you, what do you think is the magic of, of science fiction? For me, I think when I was a teenager, uh, you know, teenagers are very difficult and every problem you have is end of the world. And, um, yeah. For me, it was about escape. You know, I might have had a bad day at school or maybe I didn't quite fit in. I didn't have friends or I was being bullied. But when I came home, I could sit down and watch my favorite sci-fi show and escape into that world. And in that world, usually in science fiction, especially around the time of Quantum Leap and Star Trek, it wasn't about what you were. It was about who you were. And people weren't made fun of or bullied. And it felt like a you were accepted into that world almost. And then when you meet other people that share your passion for the same television shows you do, you kind of instantly have a connection with them. That's my take on it. My thought now, of course, I've had a lot of years to sort of sit and ruminate on it. My thought now is that science fiction is all about the unknown. And the unknown is so frightening. You know, it's so frightening. And I think that at any given moment, I have a choice of either of succumbing to the fear and being frightened of it and shutting down or running away, or I have the choice 
to say, I don't know what this is, and I'm okay with that. It's almost like embracing the big mystery and saying, I don't know, and I love it. I love not knowing. And isn't this a wonderful adventure to go on? Mm. So I can either be frightened by the unknown or embrace it as something as that it's supposed to be unknown. <laughs> I like that. Sort of like, you know, you like that. I, I yeah. hope I'm not talking in circles, but it's, it's kind of like that. And that, uh, and then what I can do is when I'm here on earth, you know, I can look at things that horrify me or displease me or make me uncomfortable. And I can say, I don't have to have all the answers here. I don't have to have all the answers. Sometimes I can just um, let things play out and not be frightened of it because it's a mystery and it's supposed to be a mystery. But I can I can um, do the next indicated thing. I can do what, what appears to be the right thing to do. It doesn't mean I, I can be inactive or not take action when it's required of me and have the courage to do that even when I'm afraid. Because that's the other thing all of these science fiction people do too, all these leading characters. They do the right thing. They do the courageous mm-hmm, thing, mm-hmm. even when they're scared out of their wits. Right. You know, even when it seems unsolvable and improbable and, and fatal. So it really engages a lot of the, I think, natural hero in all of us. And, and I think that's worthy of a fan base because I think we all have that, even if we're sitting on the couch uh, with a remote eating popcorn. <laughs> right. Exactly. It taps, it taps into everybody's inner hero, you know? Exactly. We, we all wish we could be them. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And there's a, a natural morality to it, too. There seems to be a, an, a, an ethical place and a, and a natural morality to it as well. So um, that's me talking in really broad terms. Oh, my gosh. I didn't mean to be so <laughs> philosophical. Um, that's interesting that you said that about being bullied or made fun of. Is that what happened to you? Uh, yeah, I had a rough childhood. Me too. I get it. But television and the escapism helped me and also the hope for a better future. And, and like I said, uh, when I met people that also loved the same shows I loved, like Quantum Leap or Star Trek, and uh, we understood each other. So I was able to build friendships through that. Right. Isn't it wonderful what story... That's, that's the mission of actors, is to be good storytellers, because you bring people together through that. And um, good. I'm glad to hear that. You found, you found your people, right? Yes, yes I did. I did. I had, a, I had a rough childhood, too. It looks like everything's pretty rosy. Mm-hmm. But I ran to dancing and acting because it gave me um, my escape from that. So I get the bullying quite a bit. And um, I wasn't always pretty. I was the most surprised by that, to tell you the truth. I don't know if I People, believe you. I, I believe you'll have to. You'll have to. I was quite the uh, short, fat, hairy, toothy um, squaw. I was really, <laughs> I was really a, a tomboy, not not a, very awkward, gawky. I got bullied a lot for that mm-hmm. uh, and um, made fun of a lot for that, for those very reasons. I was pretty ostracized. And then somewhere late in high school, I kind of went through very late, I think like senior year, uh, all the way through college, I went through some kind of ugly duckling transformation, and um, no one was more surprised than me, except my mother. <laughs> Even she said, who are you? <laughs> you know, you walked in as this one girl, and you walked out, and I'm just like, what? How did this happen? You know, I'm glad it happened, but how did this happen? We're all glad I, it happened. I, 
I'm glad it happened. Well, I, I have to tell you, um, having that early hard childhood, though, made me appreciate the finer aspects of being a good person, a good human. Being smart is good enough. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Having a good heart and because um, I was always the same person after I got pretty. You know, it was just the outside that changed, not the inside. I think uh, probably I had to go through those things in life in order to develop into a decent human being. And then the other stuff happened by itself. I, I still can't explain it. I probably won't get an answer to that until I'm standing at the pearly gates going, so you want to let me in on the joke? What happened here? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I certainly took up a lot of your time. I, I appreciate it so much. Thank you so you much. You do? Okay. Yes. I just talked your ear off. but uh, I loved it. Oh, good. And uh, I had a wonderful afternoon with you. Thank you so much for thinking of me and uh, making me a part of this. It was a real treat for me to talk to her because she's been in so many cool things that I liked and she was just very friendly and nice. She sounds awesome. She was awesome. She was one of our first big gets for a specific episode and we did it way ahead of time, but we were able to talk to her. So it was great. And it's cool that she teaches acting and has books out about acting and stuff. And she's still acting today. So it's it's really cool that she still does all that kind of stuff. And uh, she just seems like a very fun and nice person. And it was so cool that James Harper and Beverly Leach happened to be friends. That's awesome. It is. It's it's really great. I mean, knowing them on a more personal level now, like I do after talking with them, it makes me even love this episode even more. Oh, I'm sure. It seems that way that like everybody involved with Quantum Leap was really a genuinely nice person. I think we picked the right show to be fans of. Quantum Leap is an awesome show. And now for our third interview, it's John Hertzler who played Weathers Farrington, Harvard, 19. J.G. Hertzler is an actor, director, and writer who has played many parts in film, television, theater, and video games. I'm most excited to talk to him because he is one of the few actors to portray more than seven roles in the modern incarnations of Star Trek, including General Martok on Deep Space Nine, a Herogen that wrestled Jerry Ryan's Seven of Nine on Voyager, and one of my favorite Klingon characters, Advocate Kolos, who defended Scott Bakula's Captain Archer in Enterprise. But us leapers know him best as Weathers Farrington, Kate's father who tried to convince her to marry Vincent Loja against her will in the Quantum Leap episode Seabride. Hello, Mr. Hertzler. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. It's nice to talk to you. Is that Quantum Leap I hear? This is one of the families of the third. I'm watching myself and being very amused. Here he's having his... This is very funny. I've seen it before. I know. That's my daughter talking. <laughs> I'm, I'm, we're watching a scene of me talk to my daughter about getting married, and my daughter is here watching the scene. With anyway, I'm going to turn it off now. Thank you for uh, watching it. I know. I've never seen it. I said, well, wait a minute. Uh, I think I better watch this because it was uh, a lot of years ago. It was 89, I think. Or yeah, maybe, before, maybe 90s, actually. 25 years anyway, ago. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to remind me of that. <laughs> but uh, yes, I'm the I'm the sort of the proper age now, but I was, um, at that point, when we were, uh, when I was 
I was auditioning actually for the captain of the ship, and uh, Deborah Pratt said, uh, you know, I think you could play the father. And so Belisarius came. She called in Belisarius, and he walked through and said, yeah, he goes, he goes old, she goes young, it's fine, do it, it's done, and walked out. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the casting. That was the complexity of the casting. Wow. But it was, um, yeah, it was fun down in, uh, where was it? The Queen Mary down in uh, Long Beach. What are your memories of uh, filming that episode? Uh, tell me all about it. Well, it was shot on the Queen Mary, which is, you know, uh, sort of beached in a small lagoon there at, uh, in uh, Long Beach, California. We shot it on the actual ship, which was beautiful. It was stunning, stunning. And um, so that was fun. Uh, the whole thing, and, you know, Scott, you get a chance to punch Scott with that big old schnauzer here. That, uh, <laughs> I really like that. Um, he's a wonderful guy. I mean, I didn't know him before that, never met him. And Dean Stockwell was one of my favorite actors of all time, so that was fun. Although I didn't, you know, I didn't have any, nobody had anything to do with Dean except uh, Scott. But, um, yeah, and uh, James Harper, the guy that played the uh, Vinny the Viper, was a friend of mine after that. I didn't realize we both auditioned for uh, this pirate, uh, Black Dog, in uh, uh Treasure Island film, which apparently was shot. But the, um, the cinematographer for this was a guy named Michael Watkins, and uh, I didn't realize it until I looked at the credits of this film, but uh, of this episode, but he was also the cinematographer on the uh, later production of uh, Treasure Island that we did. It's funny, these things all fit together. If you look back at a career, how odd is that? Michael Watkins was the cinematographer on Seabride, Quantum Leap. Then he was the cinematographer for Treasure Island, The Adventure Begins, which was a basically a long, it was a major TV movie, but it was made by uh, Steve Wynn in Vegas to be able to advertise the opening of his new casino, Treasure Island. And it ran, that movie ran, oh, it's weird, it, it ran 24-7 uh, at the casino, at the hotel. So the people that came, it was on the air, it was, you know, it was on NBC as well, but it ran 24-7 for like a couple of years at uh, Treasure Island. But uh, Iris Stephen Bear who was the executive producer of Deep Space Nine, his parents, or one of his parents, lived in Vegas. So he would take his kids to see their uh, grandparents in Vegas, and he would stay, and he stayed at Treasure Island. And he saw me play Black Dog, and uh, that is because his kids loved Black Dog. That's basically why I got cast as Martok. Wow. In the DS9. That's crazy. That's right. That's how it happens. And um, what's odd about that is that the woman who was in uh, uh, what Treasure Island, what the movie was about, was a little kid uh, who sees a painting come alive. It's a painting of a sword fight between Long John Silver and Black Dog. And the, Anthony Zerby played Long John Silver. And he and I come alive off this painting and continue this sword fight and this chase for the map. And uh, I'm trying to get the little boy is sucked into the thing that evolves from this painting. The little boy, his fantasy, he's sucked into it, and he becomes Jim Hawkins. Jim Hawkins, eh? And um, anyway, I'm chasing him around for the map. Give me the map. But his mother, the woman who plays his mother, later is cast as my wife, as Martok. She's cast as Sorella. Oh, wow. Uh, it's face nine. Uh, so Shannon, I already, and I already knew her from that, uh, 
from the movie I did with her. And uh, the reason I brought up Jim Harper was I think he also read for Black Dog. He got cast with something else. Uh, anyway, we had, it was a strange connection over a couple of decades there. Of, uh, but that's how, that's how it works. It's a kind of a small town. That's pretty awesome. I, I got to watch that now. It sounds interesting. Oh, it's, well, it's fun. I, it, it, it includes uh, Steve Wynn put everything he could into it of what he does in Vegas. So the, he had uh, Cirque du Soleil because he was opening not the Mirage. Or, yeah, I guess it was the Mirage. He was opening the Mirage and Treasure Island. And he had the Cirque du Soleil doing, performing in the Mirage. In, uh, so he put them into this film. At one point, I jump off a platform about 60 feet above the stage at the Mirage and come, to, and that's the entrance. Uh, I come down a rope and it is a long way down. When you look down from 60 feet above the stage and Cirque du Soleil is at the bottom doing strange things, that took every bit of <laughs> to come down that rope. I had a wire on me, of course, but, uh, it was a great entrance because the black stuff, the black cape billowed out and, my black hair. I was all black. It was great. Anyway, that is, that's the connection between... And then later, of course, I did... Uh, I, I got a chance to work with uh, Scott again in uh, uh, in Enterprise. Um, I love the episode where you uh, you were played the lawyer. What was his name? Kolos? Yeah, Kolos. Was the, they called him an arbiter, or, I think, but yeah, it's basically mm-hmm. a Klingon lawyer. Which is great because the Klingon, if, you, if you lose a case, evidently, in, in Klingon law, you, the lawyer goes to jail, too. And I think that's the way it should be. <laughs> that's a good motivation to win the case. <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> I really like that episode of Enterprise because it showed that not every Klingon is a warrior, that there's actual people that uh, make the world work, too. Yeah, I like that, too. Um, and uh, I liked, uh, I had a couple of very, very, very nice speeches to Scott in his cell. And uh, <laughs> another funny thing about that episode was... Um, Scott and I were back in their caves at one point uh, on Ruripente. We were back loading up huge chunks of mica. You know, it's dilithium theoretically, but it's big chunks of mica. And it was, they were very heavy. But we were sitting just around the corner in the cave because we had to make an entrance carrying the stuff into the camera, into the view of the camera. But we'd sit back there waiting until we said, and I said, and we were talking. He said, you know, this reminds me of uh, other jobs I had before I got into acting. <laughs> he said, yeah. He said, I was an electrician. So Scott did electrical work, mm. and I did uh, concrete curb and gutter. And we were talking about our, our money jobs before it all, uh, you know, before we got to work regularly. As I Did uh, talk of Seabride come up while you were working together on Enterprise? Oh, yeah. yeah, Oh, yeah. He remembered. Because, uh, you know, the first thing I did was punch him in the nose. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I have no depth perception because I have a bad left eye. Mm. That's why Mark talked. Uh, it didn't bother me to have that eye covered because I have a, a bad left eye, amblyopia, and I don't really use it. They first tried to cover the right eye. I said, oh, no, 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 no. I, I can't. I'll knock over everything. I can't see. But, um, oh, and Michael Watkins uh, was the cinematographer for Seabride. Uh, I think he was probably did most of the episodes for Quantum Leap. But then he was also the cinematographer for that Treasure Island thing. And then later he became, I believe he, he worked on... Uh, one of the Star Trek series. I'm not sure which one. Maybe it was Voyager. But um, anyway, it's, as I say, it's a small town. This episode, Seabride of Quantum Leap, it's the one with the most yeah. guest stars of Star Trek in it. Is that right? It's got you, and it's got Beverly Leach and James Harper, which were both in episodes of Star Trek. And, of course, Scott Bakula. Oh, wow. Wow, yeah. 
Well, Jim Harper too, wasn't Jim? Uh, didn't he do something in Star Trek? Yeah, he did a Deep Space Nine. Yeah, so that's, it's I uh, thought so. it's full of uh, Star Trek alumni there. Isn't that funny? Yeah, that's cool. Pretty cool. Um, can we talk a little bit about your character of Weathers Farrington and uh, how did you feel when you were uh, doing those scenes when you were trying to convince Catherine to get married to Vinny the Viper, which she didn't want to do? I, I have no, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what I was thinking back then. Okay. I think you know, as most actors do. I think you know. I hope I'm not. I hope I look old enough. And I, I, and I really. Without a mustache, I, uh, especially without a beard, especially, but without a mustache, I, I look like I'm about twelve, and uh, I, so I would have looked even younger back then. But I thank goodness I had that mustache because that it helps a lot. But my, I was, you know, I was thinking such things as I hope I look old enough while I'm doing this. Uh, she looks incredible. She looks. I'm not sure. What did she? Did she do? Did you say she did a, a, a Star Trek? Yeah, she did a Voyager. She did a Voyager. Oh, she was a Voyager. You know what she did? Beverly Leach, she played an alien with um, Ron Glass in an episode of Voyager where they huh. pretended to be doctors, but they weren't. Taking over a ship, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Something um, like that. Well, that's interesting, yeah. You did a Voyager too, right? You were a Herogen. Uh, yeah, I did. A, I played a Herogen where I had to uh, I had to wrestle with, these, with uh, seven of nine and uh, rough that job, was, uh, very tough. That <laughs> is, uh, yeah, <laughs> that was tough. But she, one of the stories about that, of course, was she. Um, she was worried that she wouldn't be able to look adept enough uh, at um, the martial arts, even though they had a they, well, they had a uh, stand-in for her and a stand-in for me. We were both medalists in the uh, in the Seoul Olympics in martial arts, and uh, at one point I was. That is, his name was Ernie, I think, and I, he's done very well. But he was just breaking into the business back then, and um, at one point he was rotating horizontally about five, six feet in the air, and was, uh, pretending to be me. <laughs> my daughter asked, "He said, Dad, that's really impressive." I said, yeah, well, I, you know, I remember a few things in my old martial arts days. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, she wanted to look good, so she called a special rehearsal on a Saturday. Uh, seven and nine did, and um, so we all showed up. Everybody involved in the uh, fighting showed up. They had a brilliant fight choreographer along with Danger Dennis Madeline, but they had a couple of martial arts guys there too that were phenomenal. And um, they said, um, uh, "Oh, she called it about nine o'clock." Everybody was there at nine o'clock, warming up, ready to go. And she didn't get there for some reason until about ten thirty. So, well, first of all, you never rehearse in Hollywood on a Saturday. It just doesn't happen. But everybody understood, and it was seven at nine, for heaven's sake. She came in late, and she was so embarrassed. And um, they said, okay, go ahead and warm up. Take a taste. And she said, no, 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 I'm ready. I'm warmed up. I'm ready to go. So the first move she had was I did some sort of a spin move and, and fake hit her on the back. So she uh, lunges forward. And when she lunged on that first step, she, like, pulled a gluteus maximus muscle. She pulled a butt muscle. Mm. And, uh, and she went down, and uh, there were about 15, 15 people there ready to massage that out, <laughs> get that Charlie horse out of, uh, yeah. as fast as possible. Was she just as gorgeous in real life? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Seven of them, yeah. Uh, Jerry, but her name was, uh, her family name, or I met her dad, is Zimmerman. Oh. Uh, she's uh, German, hmm. uh, originally. And uh, he was, he had a German accent, Harry, her dad. He was from, he lived, I think they lived in Kentucky or Tennessee at that point, but he was visiting the stage 
during that um, shoot, or maybe it was a convention later. Uh, it might have been a convention. I can't remember. But I met him. He was uh, he was in law enforcement, uh, actually. But he was great and uh, a neat guy. And, uh, yeah, she is stunningly, stunningly beautiful. I have several um, action figures of her. <laughs> yeah, so do I. In fact, I have one <laughs> right in front of me. I've got seven of nine clothes. Working with Beverly Leach, how was that? I don't remember. You know, I actually don't remember very much. I was sort of um, very nervous uh, because I wasn't sure. I didn't think I was old enough to play her dad convincingly, and it was it's film, and the camera's right on top of you. And uh, I was worried about that most of the time. Um, I really don't think I had that much conversation with her outside of the actual scenes. Yeah, it was, it was a professional relationship. I never, I didn't, I didn't sit around much. I was, I was fairly new to Hollywood at that point. I think I hadn't done much, and so every every major thing that was involved on a, on a TV episode or whatever was uh, was very important to me. And I, uh, excuse me, I've never been uh, very relaxed. Uh, actually, I don't like acting very much. I, I prefer not to be looked at. Really? Yeah, I, I, I really do. So I loved being behind all that uh, latex and wigs and costume for. Uh, the Star Trek stuff, I, uh, that that was good for me. But I, uh, the rest of it is sort of I much prefer uh, directing. You know, in the theater, I've spent most of my time directing and acting, but uh, half of my time has been directing, and, and later on I started writing. So I write uh, screenplays now. But um, what are some of the plays you directed? Oh, a lot of Shakespeare, uh, a lot of outdoor Shakespeare, a lot of touring company Shakespeare. I've done a lot of um, associated classics. Victor Hugo, you know, Count of Monte Cristo. Well, I have to get on my resume for the things I've directed. <laughs> Plays called uh, uh, Perfect Analysis Given by a Parrot by Tennessee Williams, uh, Uncle Vanya, the other uh, Chekhov's, uh, The Boar, The Proposal. Uh, a lot of classic theater, basically, and some brand new plays. I took a new play to uh, New York called Practice about a street hockey team in uh, Queens, New York in 1950. And I had, there were about 18 people in it, and nine of them were on roller skates all the time. So because it was a roller skating team, you know, a, a street hockey team. And that was fun. That was, uh, spent a lot of time. I just did a, a production of 1776 here in uh, Ithaca, and I did Mr. Night's Dream, and Neil Simon's Biloxi Blues, you know, all kinds of things here. They say they hire a lot of uh, stage actors for Star Trek because it's very almost Shakespearean-like, especially Klingons. Well, I, I attribute it to this. I think that Shakespeare's a, a, it's a rarefied language. You know, it's verse for the most part. So you have to make the verse sound like conversation, and it's a very heightened form of speech, but you have to make it sound like it's almost every day. You have to, you have to make it believable to the audience. So Shakespearean actors have, have practice in, in doing that, speaking in a, high, uh, a heightened, sort of a heightened reality. So that when you're playing aliens, and that's you know, so many of us uh, ended up playing aliens on Star Trek, you were often talking in some sort of heightened form, but you had to make it sound as if it were believable and very real. So that's the, the, the people with their little Shakespearean training have a better chance at bridging that gap, you know. And I think it's uh, Rene Aubergenois was, he was at ACT before I was there, and uh, Armin Schumerman was at ACT before I was there. But it was one of the best classical theater repertory companies in the country for a long time in San Francisco. And a lot of people had training in Shakespeare and a huge theater background. Casey. Casey Biggs used to get 
he was there in New York when I was in New York, and he would get cast as everything. He was a handsome guy. He got every role that I was auditioning for. Casey Biggs and a guy named, uh, it was Boyd Douglas. Bruce, oh, Bruce Davidson was also about the same vintage, and he would get the rest of the stuff in case he didn't get <laughs> and uh, would leave old John out, out of the running. But I did all right. But, uh, yeah, so a lot of us have a Shakespeare background. For that reason, I think that's why they cast us. You did a lot of Deep Space Nine. It says uh, 27 episodes on IMDb. Does it? I don't know. Your favorite character of all those you did was probably what, Martok? Yeah, an actor doesn't have a chance to work on a character very often, but over four years. And Martok gave me that opportunity. You know, usually you have, for a show, you have like four weeks of rehearsal for a stage play. And that's, you know, you become familiar with the character for four weeks, then you do it for another four weeks, and then you're done. But with television, with, uh, you know, a series, those guys can work on their characters for seven years. And uh, and I was lucky. I had a recurring character that came on. So I got to work on it for four years. And they, when you work over a period of time like that, everything becomes um, refined. And the writers start writing for you because they see what you've done and they take what you've done and they make it more. <laughs> you know, you, you see what they've given you, you make it more. They, they see what you've taken from it and they give you more. You know, that, that's the way it works. And so that was a great, because it was, uh, Martok was over a period of four years, it was a great uh, canvas to work on. One of my favorite video games back then was the Star Trek Klingon game. Oh, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the filming of that? And was that different from filming a television episode in any way? Or Well, not really, except they had several, yes, to do several uh, possibilities because the guy, the uh, actor, whoever the game person is, is going to be uh, making a choice. He has to do it three separate outcomes for every large moment. But that happened because I auditioned for it, and uh, there was a sequence uh, where Bob O'Reilly did the lead, of course, to play on. Right. And I auditioned for something. I forget what it was. I don't know. Anyway, there was a long sequence where he had to speak Klingon. And I said, when I was preparing for it, I said, no, what am I going to do? I can't speak. I don't know what the Klingon sounds like. I don't know what kind of accent. I don't know. I, well, I, let me see if I do. I'll just, I'll speak in a foreign language. I'll do it in French. No, French sounds like that. I'll do it in Spanish. Oh, I'll, I'll do a piece of Latin. Because... I took a lot of Latin in high school and college, and uh, my mother was a Latin teacher in high school. And so I did uh, Cicero's fourth oration against Catiline, and I came to this part where it said, uh, we're supposed to be speaking in Klingon. I said, boss, you do not understand. This is the Klingon way. ever auditioned with Latin <laughs> for me before. Um, there's really nothing for you in this CD, the DVD, the ROM, but I'm going to ask the writers to write you in. Hmm. And that's why they created that old Klingon. And uh, he said, I, I happen to love Latin. <laughs> so that's another reason. Not only did uh, Steve and I were Bear's kids like Black Dog that got me in, but my mother was a Latin teacher, mm. and that helped get me in. Uh, so if kids ask me now, how do you get into show business, I said, take Latin. <laughs> that's my, that's my uh, advice. I thought that character was really good in the video game because it showed how older Klingons were treated 
if they didn't die in battle. Well, that's right. That's right. It got there. That, he was the one that chose the, uh, either the, the weak, the infirm, the feeble to attack, and uh, that was what my character supposedly was supposed to be, the one that the Patak would uh, attack. Using Klingon philosophy, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny you use Klingon words, and I understand them, so. Yeah. Klingons have, like, a subset of Star Trek fans that are all about the Klingons. Do you have, a like, a more rabid fan base because you p- portrayed so many Klingons? You know what I have? It's an odd thing on Facebook. What I have is a lot of people that are fans of the show. They're Klingon fans. And Klingons are very, I, I'd say they have, they're, they're much. They're pretty much on the right end of uh, of the political spectrum. Tend toward uh, almost a fascist approach to uh, to politics. And for that reason, I have a lot of people that are. I mean, I am a screaming lefty for the most part, and it it just it absolutely shocks people that are my Klingon fan base that I'm I'm over there. But on the other hand, I'm not a. Uh, my background is, Hurtful is an Amish name, and the Amish are pacifists. The Amish do not go to war. But on the other hand, I was a linebacker in uh, college, and linebackers live for going to war. So I have a strange, conflicting personality, conflicted personality, that so many of the Klingon fans that are out there are surprised at my political positions but they enjoy my the vehemence of my <laughs> positions and the passions in which they're stated. So that's, uh, but it's an odd mix of uh, passion and uh, liberalism. I had a chance to check out your Facebook. You had some good stuff on there. Yeah, I, I have a I have some wonderful arguments with people, and uh, but mainly my birthday just went by, so I got, I was stumped. I had like over a thousand people wishing me happy birthday. I said, that's I'm impressed. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> How was it's your birthday? Awesome. March eighteenth, right? How was your birthday? Yeah. Oh, I don't. I don't talk about it at this age. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're finally old enough in real life to play Catherine Farrington's father. Exactly. <laughs> I am. I am old enough now to do that role, and I could kill in that role now. But I was very nervous back in the day. <laughs> I, I saw that video you put up there about the they opened the gun shop and each gun had a story on it. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I think everybody should watch that. Oh well, that was very interesting. Uh, you know, a lot of people and I said, "Look, they weren't they weren't actually selling guns. It was a propaganda film, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a propaganda for the uh, something that I believe in." And I and I wanted to wanted to point out to people that there's the you know the the downside of weapons that is you know is awful, and uh, because people you know the, the, I said there's propaganda both ways, and uh, so I, I said, "Don't look at it as if they were." breaking any laws. They weren't trying to really sell guns. They were just making a point. And, um, but I, I tell you, I've got a lot of, that was an interesting, uh, explosion of opinions on that one, mm-hmm. but it's good. I mean, uh, I, yeah. nobody seems to dislike me terribly because of my opinions and vice versa, oh, There you, you go. Know, which is the way it should be. Tell me a little bit about, if you could, uh, the adventures of Briscoe County Jr., one of my favorite series growing up. You know, I've never, ever seen that. I've never seen that episode. I play an actor, <laughs> which is not the first time I've played an actor. I've been an actor playing an actor. But I, the biggest piece of that for me was meeting uh, Morgan Woodward, and that old cowboy actor. That, uh, he's probably gone now. Maybe he's not. I don't know. But 
he was Shotgun Gibbs. Uh, one of my favorite shows growing up was um, Wyatt Earp with Hugh O'Brien. And uh, I believe, and I might have this wrong, but I believe his sidekick was a guy named Shotgun Gibbs. And I believe Morgan Woodward played that role. I think I asked him about it. And he said, yeah, well, that's me. Hmm. But that was, you know, he, he and he drives a caddy with giant longhorn horns mounted on the uh, on the hood, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> but he does. He was one of the bounty hunters. He was the main bounty hunter on that show. And I, I actually, I've never seen it, so I don't know. It's worth a watch. Oh, I love Bruce uh, Campbell. You yeah. know, he's a, he's a tremendous comedy performer and a great actor. I just, uh, I love watching him, too. I love working with him. Something um, I wanted to ask you about, uh, Star Trek Axanar. Yeah, no, it's a, we did the prelude to Axanar, which was a great idea for a uh, trailer for a film to raise money for the main Kickstarter project. But this Alec Peters, who's the producer and um, co-writer, well, along with Christian Gossett, the director, and he plays Garth in it, has done everything right, like I've never seen before. I mean, they've done, they have put together a, the most professional, there were two days of I think it was probably four days of shooting, but some of us were there for only two days for that trailer. It was a green screen trailer, but the studio, when we, when we went into the studio, they rented an old, um, one of the old studios of either RKO or, uh, oh man, I can't remember who it was. It wasn't Charlie Chaplin, but it was one of the original, you know, one of the early filmmakers in, uh, in Hollywood. And they brought in, uh, department heads that were all professionals. And they had a lot of volunteers, but they were all led by professionals. So it was the most well-executed, professionally executed shoot that I've been... It's just as special as anything else I've ever done. And uh, all the actors, Tony and Kate and Gary and Richard, we were all impressed by, wow, you know, it doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. And they've done a great job. I didn't think the script would work. And then I saw it and I said, wow. This is really good. And Tobias Richter, the guy who does the, the CGI, he is from Dusseldorf, which is where that jet was headed that just crashed in the French Alps. Mm. Uh, and that's a horrible thing going on over there. But mm. um, but that's where he's, he does his work out of Dusseldorf. And uh, it's just, that's what filmmaking has become. You can do the CGI halfway around the world. And they do really good, really good. It's incredible work. And put it together... Uh, in uh, you know digitally, it's amazing what you can do. Uh, Alec is doing the, as good a work in professional managing a, uh, you know a studio project that I've ever seen. So I have nothing but great things to say. The script has uh, just been locked for the full move, and it looks like we're shooting sometime in October. Once I saw that trailer, I was uh, very excited to see if when it came out. Yeah, I think we're going to be shooting in October, which means they're going to be able to release it for the following summer. Pretty much, uh, it takes that long to to do post, but um, it's, it's, it looks good. It looks good, and I, of course, I you know I fell in love with Kate, and we all fell in love with each other. The actors, we've done a couple of conventions together, and we've had way too much fun. <laughs> uh, but it's been really great. And, Is that uh, why you do the fan projects? No, it's really not. It's for me. It's a job that ha- happens to have the reward of working with some wonderful talent, and that's not always the case, but when it is the case, it makes it all way beyond worthwhile. It makes it all the reason we're doing this business, to work together to create something that's very special, and that's the whole point of uh, filmmaking and theater, for that matter. 
Um, it doesn't always work out that way, but this time it is, and it's pretty special. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Love your voice. You've uh, done a lot of voice acting. Yeah, I'm available to do more. Do you know anybody? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, yeah, I do. And uh, when I left L.A., I left uh, to come over here to teach at Cornell. And um, that took me out of the, basically out of the acting business pretty much. Uh, because I was, uh, you know, you have to be there to, uh, to interview and meet people for things and whatnot. So when I went to northern, uh, upstate New York, forget about it. Because I was too far to drive into New York to read for things. and But they occasionally call me in to do uh, voiceovers for things. So I go into New York and do them in there. Oh, and I just did the narrator for my daughter. She just, uh, it opened and closed, a the high school production, of, the Trumansburg High School production of Beauty and the Beasts, where mm-hmm. I played the narrator at the beginning. I said, once upon a time, in a land far, far away, there lived a handsome young prince in a shining castle. You know, and that's, and it went on from there, but I love doing that for my daughter. That's awesome that you did that for your daughter. Yeah, exactly. They are the best. How old is your daughter? My daughter is two and a half. She's awesome. Her name is Serenity, and I love her. Oh, wow. Yeah. So two and a half. You got a lot of fine years ahead of you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. That's a great age. You got yeah. the next six years are going to be wonderful. And then it changes, and then it gets even better. <laughs> but the six, you know, reaching down for that little hand when uh, you cross the street or walk in the parking lot or whatever, yeah. there's nothing better than that, Dad. Melts my heart every day. Yeah. Going back to Quantum Leap, do you have any other memories of things that happened or maybe a particular day on the set that stands out in your memory while filming Seabride? I don't remember much except the uh, the big dance number. You know, uh, uh, Scott Bakula is basically a song and dance guy. Yeah. Did a lot of musicals before he got into um, uh, television and film, and so he did. There was a big ballroom scene, and uh, he got a chance to do some ballroom dancing with Ms. Leach, and um, that was pretty exciting to watch him because he's he's really good. <laughs> he's really good. He's a good tap dancer. He's a good uh, just good all around dancer. But that ballroom had a big band in it. They played big band numbers, and there was a live singer. You know, and I love I love big bands. And uh, so that for me, that was very special, too, because not only did I not have to dance, but I could be there to listen to the big band music. That was great. That sounds like a fun day. Like, I'm getting paid for this. This is awesome. But it, was, it wasn't, well, it was about eight days, but it was, yeah, it was awesome for eight times over. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. That long to shoot absolutely. the episode or to just that yeah. scene? Yeah, no, well, oh, well, yeah, the episode is about eight days. Okay. The scene, yeah, uh, I don't know. The scene was a couple of days because it was big. It involved a lot of extras. There were a lot of people on stage, so that always takes longer. Was that on the Queen Mary as well? Yeah, it was. everything was shot on the Queen Mary. It was uh, the original, you know, the, they had an old ball. They had old ballrooms on the on the Queen Mary. They had the pools. They had the decks. They had the deck chairs. They had everything was there. I mean, it was absolutely fascinating for that reason alone. It was on board that great old ship. You know, there was a major, uh, she had a major part in World War II. Uh, Queen Mary was, uh, you know, ferried troops for, it was a, because it was fast. It was an ocean liner, and it was built to cruise fast. So it was one of the best ones they had, even though she was huge, uh, to shuttle troops because she could cut really, uh, really uh, fast through the shipping lanes and the U-boats wouldn't have a chance to catch up because they weren't as fast as that big old uh, 
she had three stacks, and she was, yeah, she was a fast old ship. Thank you very much. I think this has been a Kepla. Kepla. <laughs> right. Excellent. Well, that's good. into sci-fi tv hey everybody welcome back i'm brent barrett i'm kevin batchelder i'm wendy hembrock the viewer's guide to genre television welcome everyone to a special supernatural focus bonus hello everyone show. and welcome to the faith on a family of podcasts for the genre loving television viewer welcome to saturday b movie reel hi everyone welcome to the study welcome group to the top genre characters of all time countdown and tonight we're going to be talking about game of thrones season three find us at tuning into sci-fi tv.com don't call it a comeback I've been here for years, I'm hogging my peers, suckers in fear, making the tears rain down like a monsoon, listen to the bass go boom. Explosion. Hey everybody, I'm Gabe. I'm Juan. And I'm John. And uh, we do Thinking Outside the Long Box podcast. It has segments, but... We don't ever really stick to that And we talk about comic books. Which we love. And we talk about movies. Which we also love. And we talk about TV shows. Which we love also. And we talk about our mm. love lives, which we love. And John. John in his underpants? Yes. I know. But basically, mm. it's a show about things that sort of have to do with comic books. We've interviewed some cool people, and we like to talk about stuff. Rob Bruce. Yeah. Lila Del Duca. Other people. So you should listen to our podcast, because we need your attention, because we're sad, sad men. Sad and pandas. And it's awesome, because we're also hilarious. 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 Amazingly hilarious. Can you say in a commercial? I don't know. We'll see. Commercial. <laughs> I'll bleep it. Is this commercial now? I don't want to go there. Basically, I'm this not is taking my exactly pants off. Exactly what the show is like, <laughs> and you should listen to it. I'm Gabe. I'm Juan, and I'm John. And you should listen to Thinking Outside the Long Box, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and your regular RSS feed. Came up with a funky rhyme. Mama said, "Knock you out." I'm going to knock you out. Mama said, "Knock you out." I'm going to knock you out. I'll just tell you, A, that, that Don, Don's approach to Quantum Leap was, ironically, he insisted that the show be about entertainment, which is his philosophy about television, that he, television is to entertain. He would always say, I don't, I'm not talking about issues. This is a relationship story. It's about uh, stories about the heart. It's about humanity. It's about feeling good. You look at all of Don's shows, he, he's always had very strong male relationships in all of his shows, and that's really what, what he wanted our show to be about. And the other stuff that snuck in, he's responsible for some of it, because he would say, well, can we get some stuff about the environment in one of these shows, you know? And the, the, the episode where we were on the steam sh on the, uh, uh, the Queen Elizabeth, there was a part added about dumping trash in the ocean. That's from Dean Stockwell. There was always Ooh. those kinds of things. John didn't show up in the morning saying, let's do a show about the environment. He never approached it that way. And I think at times fought people that wanted to do shows that had messages. I wanted to do the rape show, not after the rape. I wanted to, I wanted to leap in during the rape. But, but we got this 
scripts so late in time, there was often, we never really had a lot of input into them once they got there, except he would always, you know, sneak stuff in. He'd go to his trailer and he'd, and he'd come back with a new monologue and there'd be all this <laughs> great stuff in it. And I'd be like, my face would be like, and he wouldn't tell anybody, he would just like start rattling this stuff off. <laughs> I don't know. But that's the magic of, of this guy and his acting, which uh, was astounding and phenomenal and, and amazing to be around. Thank you. Thank you. This is Donald P. Belisario, and you are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. As you may have heard from that little transition, Albie had the great pleasure of talking to Donald P. Belisario recently, and we have a very exciting interview. It'll be a special episode all about the Donald P. Belisario interview. It was awesome to talk to the man himself, the creator, the executive producer of Quantum Leap, Donald P. Belisario. How freaking cool. It's amazing. It took some time to get through the assistants and the people and, you know, have my people call his people. And I, I actually do have people now. So it, I was going to say, <laughs> you, you actually do have people. That's kind of crazy. But it, it all worked out. And once uh, we we're on the phone together, he was just a really cool guy. And I can't wait for everybody to hear it. We've been just getting one interview after another. Our two producers on the show, Hayden and Juan, have just been doing an amazing job getting us interviews. And I just keep on doing them. And I'm loving it. We have another interview coming up for our next episode as well, don't we? Yeah, we, we've gotten so many great interviews. We had Fabiana Udenio, and she was great. I mean, it was really cool because I liked her from a bunch of other stuff she did besides the episode of Quantum Leap. And we had a really cool one with Michael Gregory, who played Colonel Wojohowicz in Starcrossed. It was really cool to talk to him because I'm a big fan of Total Recall. Like, that's one of my top five movies. We have Total Recall on the walls. Everywhere. The old one. The old one. Original. I don't say old. I say original. Okay. The good, you, the good one. You're not old, you're original. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> hey. But that was really cool to talk to him about the filming of Total Recall and, of course, Robocop and all the great stuff he was in. And uh, then I got to talk to Terry Copley, which she was Dixie in The Right Hand of God. So we're getting some great interviews. Yeah, that's really cool. But I have to say I'm probably most excited about Donald P. Belisario, just because without him, there would be no Quantum Leap. Yeah. So a pretty big deal. Well, and now you've talked to Deborah Pratt and Donald P. Pelissario. So you've got the creators of the whole show that we're basing our podcast on. So it's pretty awesome. All you need is an idea, a dream. And, and some microphones. And some microphones and some editing software. And I guess a, a lot of your time. <laughs> lots and lots and lots of your time. <laughs> and some great free working friends of ours. <laughs> And it all works out eventually. Who would have yeah. thought? I'd say we've made it. If we hadn't made it yet, we definitely made it when we had the creator of Quantum Leap on our show. Yeah. And he likes what we're doing. So it's very cool. You're like famous now. You know, I thought about that. Honestly, I was like, wow, I'm talking to all these famous people. But the most famous person that is just famous for talking to famous people is like Larry King. So he's like the ultimate. So I'm like maybe 1% Larry King right now, which is pretty good. Hey, I'm no percent Larry King. So that works for me. <laughs> That's our quote from the episode. Hey, I'm no percent Larry King. <laughs> and coming up on the next episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, we have Beth herself, Susan Dial. And you don't even know who she is yet. You haven't seen MIA yet. No, I have not. But just know, after you've watched the episode, I talked to her. Wow. And she's got some great stories about the filming of Quantum Leap. It's really cool I got to talk to her. 
So that's coming up in the next episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. I think everybody's really excited for me to watch the next episode of Quantum Leap. A little bit. It's, it is one of the fan favorites, I'd say. I know Hayden is excited. Yeah, and nobody can say anything about anything. Even Tom Quinn was messaging me about how you should watch it and what you should watch it from and when you should watch it. And I was like, I totally agree. No this way. Is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so we're all excited for you to watch MMA. How funny. I have no idea why. I mean, like, I don't know why it's so it's well, crazy. It's, I think it was one of the first episodes about a transgendered person, probably, maybe. Oh. That could be it. What do you think of That's that? actually a really big thing right now. So it's very relevant. Yeah. That so it's very interesting that they did that in the teaser of the next episode. So I don't, I mean, I don't know what the story's about, so I don't want to make any. It's a good story. And now it's time for the third episode of Quantum Leap, The Impossible Dream, created and written by Jill Arroway, with guest star Jennifer Runyon as Carmen. Hope you guys like it. Carmen, you did nothing wrong, except maybe trust someone who turned out to be a sleazeball. Thanks, sis. I know you mean well. But I have to do what I have to do. Do you have enough money? Yes. I'll be fine. She doesn't. Ziggy says this is probably where Carmen's life as crime starts. You have to stop this. I know. I have to go. I have to do what I have to do. Good luck. I'll scout ahead. Ziggy, send her me on Gary's house. This is the place. I can see Gary now. He's at his computer. Will do, Barbie. Sometime I forget I can walk right through his desk. Oh my word, he's cataloging more pictures, all of young girls less than half his age. But I don't see Carmen. Ugh, I don't want to look at this. I'm looking away. This isn't something I should see. Barbie, Lawrence would have a field day with this guy. He's a sleazeball, all right. In fact, he's worse than a sleazeball. He's got dozens of victims, maybe more. Oh boy. What if you could leap into the past, still facing mirror images that were not your own, still driven by an unknown force to change history for the better, and still guided by a hologram that only you could see and hear? But now you are also able to leap home. We've solved the problem. We live the impossible dream. What is Shelly doing? <gasps> Careful. She almost saw me. Oh, God, stay hidden. She's talking to someone. Someone I can't see. Okay, she must be on the phone. She must have one of those in-ear things with a hidden microphone. <sighs> okay, I gotta get closer. I've gotta hear what she's saying. I hear what you're saying, but we're running out of time. We have to come up with something right now. I tell you, you can't go in there right now. Gary is in the house. You have to wait until tomorrow when he's gone to work or something. That'll be too late. I have to go in tonight. He's got Carmen's pictures and who knows how many others. If I don't get them by tonight, he'll publish them. So tonight is the deadline. So, just call the cops. With no evidence? This is 2010, remember? The police won't take online bullying seriously without evidence. So I have to go in, okay? Okay, I guess. What is it that I'm after? I was watching Gary access his collection. It's stored on an external hard drive. That's your evidence. Okay. I'll go in. I'll get the hard drive. Job done. <sighs> Little sis. 
I didn't think you had it in you. My name's Amber. Can I come in and talk to you about God? You on your own? A pretty girl like you? Shouldn't you have a grown-up with you? We normally work in pairs, but my mentor is off sick. I'm training. Okay then, come in. You can tell me how I can be saved. I don't understand. How was Ryan able to visit Gary's house without Amber being there? I thought it was just a neurological link. I thought you'd read all the Sam Beckett reports. I did read them. I didn't say I understood them. So, can Ryan just visit anywhere in history? Any place? No. We can center him on different locations, but only within a certain radius of Amber. How big a radius? Five miles? hundred miles? It's different each mission. It depends on how strong a fix we get on Amber. That varies because of the fluctuations in the quantum level accelerator. On this particular mission, we could probably put Ryan five miles away from Amber. I wouldn't like to try any further than that. Something else I don't understand. Amber's what? 30 years old? Maybe 40? 41. She'd probably be flattered that you underestimated. Okay. But she can only time travel within her own lifetime. That means she can't go back any further than 1979. So my question is, why didn't you choose someone older? Someone who could go back further? We didn't exactly choose Amber. We more sort of discovered her. Amber is special. Special? How? Her body produces certain proteins which are not listed in the Human Proteome Project. We don't know how or why... But those proteins are the key to safe time travel. We spent decades looking for someone who possessed them. That's why we haven't let anyone leap since Sam Beckett, until now. So as far as we know, Amber is unique. She's the only human being we know who can quantum leap without side effects and then come back safely. So what would happen if anyone else, if I, were to step into the quantum leap accelerator? Then you would find yourself leaping from life to life, hoping each time that the next leap would be the leap home. You're lucky to have found her. Yes, we are. I think you're very brave, knocking on complete strangers' doors, entering their homes. My teachers at church tell me that God wouldn't let anything bad happen to me. I'm not 100% sure I believe in that God. And neither should you. Have you considered any other career choices? Like, perhaps, modeling? I'm sure I haven't. Why? Are you proposing to photograph me? Lord, no. I don't have time for that. But if you take your own, or have some taken, send them to me. I'll give you my email address. I can make sure they get sent to the right people. That's very kind of you, mister. Do you mind if I use your bathroom? Not at all. 
It's upstairs. First door on the left. Great job, Amber. Now get that hard drive and get out of here. Sounds like a plan. Which way? It's in Gary's bedroom. Follow me. Here's the computer. Let's see. Press any key. It wants a password. What a surprise. Look, we don't have time for this. Forget trying to wake up the machine. Just unplug the USB drive. That's all you need. Okay, I'm on it. Done. This isn't the bathroom. I know. I'm sorry. I got lost. No, you didn't. You were snooping. Yes, you're right. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist it. I just love looking around other people's homes. Look, I'll just go. I'll be on my way. Sorry to have troubled you. What did you just put in your bag? What? Nothing. Show me. Amber, you're going to have to run for it. I don't want to. Show me. You have the element of surprise. Why? Because you're 26 years older than he thinks you are. He's still seeing you as a 15-year-old. I'm not going to ask again. I'm going to kill you. He's got a knife. No! Quantum Leap, The Impossible Dream was created and written by Jill Arroway. Starring Tawny Finneran as Amber Lee and Juan Morrow as Ryan Lee. With special guest appearance by Jennifer Runyon as Carmen Cartwright. Also starring Hayden McQueenie as Peter Taylor, Suzanne Smiley as Barbie Sutton, and Albert Mark Burge as Gary McFarlane. Episode 1, Need You Now, was edited, cast, produced, and directed by Albert Mark Burge. Narration by Suzanne Smiley. Quantum Leap, The Impossible Dream is produced in association with the Quantum Leap Podcast and is a Barron Space production. Wow, that was pretty good. Episode three. It's getting good. It's getting good. There's one more part to this story arc and uh, it's exciting. I know how it ends now, but I can't say anything. Yeah, that's it's really cool. I never thought we'd be doing an audio drama from like the beginning of this project, but I I think it's really awesome. What did you think of my acting? I think you're amazing, but I'm probably biased. And now we have a segment from Christopher DeFilippis. You said his name right. Yay. I'm not good with names. <laughs> and it's about the far distant early 90s. Welcome, everyone. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. I'm still a relatively new listener to the Quantum Leap podcast, and one of my favorite parts of all the old episodes I'm catching up on is when Heather and Albie think back to the far distant early 1990s and speculate on how shocked the viewers in those archaic times must have been when confronted with the controversial social issues that Quantum Leap was forcing upon them. Well, let me lend you some perspective, guys. I had just turned 20 when Quantum Leap was first airing, and I don't think anyone was especially scandalized by Sam leaping into Jesse Tyler or Samantha Stormer, or shaken when the show explored things like racism or domestic violence. 
Because the simple truth is that Quantum Leap was not all that groundbreaking when it came to discussing social issues. The only way that it could have been considered even remotely controversial is when viewed through the prism of jittery network executives, who predicate all of their programming choices on how they'll be received by reactionary white male bigots. In fact, Quantum Leap must have been a godsend to them, because even if Sam was supposed to be a woman or black or someone mentally disabled, viewers were still following the adventures of a good-looking white guy week after week. It's actually pretty brilliant when you think about it. Quantum Leap found a way to have its cake and eat it too. Just drop in a four-second mirror shot of a Native American or a person with Down syndrome, and you can introduce supposedly controversial topics without taking viewers or programmers out of their comfort zones. Consider, we never saw Sam with a black girlfriend that I can remember. Even the supposedly biracial relationship portrayed in the episode Black on White on Fire features two white actors, and yet the show is lauded for boldly tackling racial issues. Pretty sneaky, Mr. Belisario. But if you want truly controversial TV, you'd do better to look to All in the Family or even Star Trek. At least that featured a true biracial kiss. This is not to say that Quantum Leap didn't tell wonderful and engaging stories with strong social and moral messages. It did so very well, but it also did so very safely. Where Quantum Leap did break new television ground was in the science fiction genre overall, and more specifically, in how it portrayed time travel. It was that rarest of all television animals, a completely original idea. And because of that, it's a wonder that Quantum Leap ever made it past the elevator pitch, because it's not a concept that you can describe in a single sentence. Imagine Don talking to the network brass. You have this guy, see, who travels in time by inhabiting other people's bodies. People in the show see him as the person he's replacing, but the viewers will see him as himself. He's from the future, and his best friend is a hologram. They use a supercomputer to make small changes in history. No, they, they won't kill Hitler. The guy can only travel within his own lifetime. It's, it's called string theory. We can come back to that. He must have made their heads explode. But for all that, Quantum Leap hit the air with this wonky and wonderfully convoluted premise intact, trusting that viewers would have enough intelligence to embrace accelerator chambers and parallel hybrid computers and neurological holograms and imaging chambers and hand links and oh boy did we ever. And another big change Quantum Leap brought to the television time travel drama was to think small. Before Quantum Leap, we had shows like Time Tunnel and Voyagers that presented the equivalent of a new period drama every week be it a horse opera, or sword and sandals, or a gaslight mystery, with the main characters trying to fix or bring about major historical events. The problem with these shows is that you always knew they would be successful, because history is already written. Let's take Voyagers, for example. It was the first time travel show I ever saw, and it instantly became my favorite. But aside from wondering why no one ever seemed to comment on Jeffrey's anachronistic Where's Waldo shirt, or Boggs dumb pirate clothes, I have almost no memory of any of the episodes except the one where they met Thomas Edison. And the reason I remember it is not because Jeffrey helped Edison invent the light bulb, but because Edison took the Omni apart, and I was afraid that Jeffrey and Bog would never get home. By ignoring the big historical events and focusing on the smaller fates of the main characters, Voyagers became much more compelling. And Belisario took that lesson to heart, making Quantum Leap resonate like that every week by telling poignant human stories. And he doubled the effect by limiting how far back Sam could leap, ensuring that the baby boomers watching would have a personal connection to whatever historical era Sam found himself in. And when the show combined those elements to tell stories specifically about Sam or Al, you got all-time great episodes like The Leap Back or M.I.A. 
as I said before, brilliant and so uniquely successful that no time travel show since has even come close to matching it. So, Albie, Heather, when you ponder how we fossils were reacting when Quantum Leap challenged all of our antiquated notions back in the olden days, it really had nothing to do with our prejudices or politics. Quantum Leap was challenging and elevating our expectations for an entire genre of television, and we were psyched to be part of history in the making. The passage of time and how old things are really is relative to how long you've been alive, I think. Well, to me, the fact that like the early 2000s were already more than a decade ago is crazy to me. Thank you so much to Christopher DeFilippis for that segment. It was a great segment. And uh, he is archiving them on his website, deflipside.com. Check our show notes for a link. And we have some feedback. Our first email is from Father Beast. These emails will be read by Juan. I appreciated the opening segment of the audio drama you guys played on a recent episode of the Quantum Leap podcast. It sounds pretty good, and I hope you will continue to play these segments as they are released. I really like that the characters reference the legacy of Sam Beckett, and much seems to be the same about the project. Except it seems that they are saying that the Leaper gets to come home in between leaps. That is different, but not unwelcome. In the new project, it sounds like the Leaper and the Observer are a married couple, which is great for the project, but I hope this couple is either childless or old enough that their children are grown. I can't imagine trying to raise a family when one parent is off jumping around time. Anyway, I'm finding it to be good stuff. This brings up the idea of rebooting or reimagining the television show, which seems to be regularly clamored for by fans. I'm not so eager, since I got burned so badly by the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. The audio drama you're involved in is a pretty good idea of how it could be done, but it could so easily be done so badly. My nightmare vision for a terrible reimagining of Quantum Leap goes like this. There is no physical jump. They strap the Leaper into the machine and send his mind into the past. There is no imaging chamber. The only way they have of knowing what's going on in the past is by having the guy still strapped into the machine tell them what he is doing, although the viewer of the TV show would see scenes taking place in the past. There is no waiting room. The Leaper imposes his mind on an existing person in the past and will sometimes struggle for control of the body. Maybe I'm in the minority on this. Maybe some people would welcome a Quantum Leap show done that way. Some people like the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, so go figure. I just know that I would not like it that way. Father Beast. Thank you, Father Beast. So what did you think about the whole Battlestar reference you made? Because I didn't see the old one. I only saw the end of the new one. I'm one of the people who love the new Battlestar Galactica. I thought it really made for a great show. One of my favorite shows of all time. My understanding is it's much more violent than the first one, though, right? Violent, darker, realer. The first show was kind of campy. Yeah. But they're both good shows. They're just very different. So that's probably what he means. Like, I don't think I would want a darker Quantum Leap. We have that now. It's called 12 Monkeys on Sci-Fi. That's exactly what I thought of when he was describing what his Quantum Leap would be. I was thinking the guy strapped to the machine like that's exactly what i envisioned so i wouldn't want that either if i if they were going to reboot quantum leap i'd still want it to be a family friendly kind of thing and uh interestingly enough we got that email from father beast before we aired christopher de Philippus's last segment about a quantum leap reboot so uh it's true what they say great minds think alike yeah this one is from aaron brotherhead moss hey i'll be in heather and of course the rest of the crew couple of notes about this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. First, 
I want to say that I think the baby was just a prop or device to move the story forward, and that's why there wasn't a lot of detail with her, as far as feeding, changing, and all of that goes. I have to agree with Heather when she said that Reed just didn't want Christy's mother to have her. For him, I don't think he really cared to be a father to Christy, he just wanted to stick it to his ex. As far as being able to tell it's a doll instead of a baby at times, keep in mind that this show is 20 years old and was meant to be seen on smaller screens without as much resolution as we have now. Regarding the ladder chain to the house, I have one of two explanations. One, again, it was originally seen on a smaller screen, so it may not have been noticeable. Or, two, maybe the ladder was a fixture of the house for safety reasons, an escape ladder in case they needed to flee the house due to a fire or something. I have to say that I loved the interview with Sean O'Banion and Chris DePhillipis's section. Great. Also, Heather, great car seat segment. Very good and informative. And I have to say that I loved the Hayden skit. Still not caring for the audio drama, but that's just one man's opinion. Just not a fan of the writing. Listening to this episode made me think. Heather, cover your ears for a minute or two. I'm going to try and keep this spoiler free, but just in case, cover your ears and go la 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 for a minute. Albie, wasn't the alien episode Starlight, Star Bright? I'm wondering now if maybe when the government spooks questioned Max, a.k.a. Sam, and found out about Project Quantum Leap, maybe they decided to start working on their own version of Project Quantum Leap and bring in a young woman named Aaliyah to be their leaper. Just a thought I had. What do you think? Feel free to have Heather uncover her ears. Anyways, thanks again for another great episode. Looking forward to Seabride. Aaron, Brotherhead, Moss. Okay, you can uncover your ears now. <laughs> okay, good. But you heard the first part of the email. Yes, I did. Somebody liked my car seat segment. Woohoo. That's pretty cool. I, I like the idea of maybe the ladder was like a fire escape type deal. Yeah, and we we know that it was meant to be seen on a smaller screen. But it's it's fun to point those things out now that we've seen it in high def and we can notice those things. So, But it's not how you remember it when you're done watching it, so... This next one is from Kimberly Dosimantis. Hey guys, greetings from New Jersey. I absolutely love your podcast and have been wanting to write for a while. I still have a few more episodes to go before I catch up. Then I guess I'll have to wait for new episodes like everyone else. I'm 23 years old and grew up watching reruns of the show on TV with my mom here and there. Until we just caved and bought all the seasons on DVD one day. She might love the show as much as I do. She thinks Sam is hunky though. That might be her reasoning. I turned her on to your podcast so we can not only talk about the Quantum Leap episodes, we can talk about the Quantum Leap podcast episodes as well. I'm still trying to get my boyfriend hooked. Anyway, thanks so much for doing your podcast and reminding me again and again why I love this show so much and giving me and my mom something new to talk about. Sometimes I take little breaks in between episodes if I don't have time to listen for a few days, but when I start up again, it's like spending time with old friends. Thanks again, Kim D. It's good to know that it's another person who's close to my age. That's pretty cool. This series has really aged well. Oh, yeah. I agree. And and I think that what appeals to a lot of people still is that there's not any shows like this out there right now. Any sci-fi or time travel kind of shows are, I think, dark. I think the, the best thing probably right now that we have close to like a sci-fi kind of family sitcom would be that, what is it, The Neighbors? that have the the alien i don't watch it but i think that that's probably close because it's obviously like family oriented enough that your mom watches it It, it's nice that they're starting to bring that kind of show back because right now sci-fi kind of shows are basically all either dark or not kid-friendly if quantum leap wasn't around 
I think that it would influence a lot of our listeners and you on how you view sci-fi and time travel and stuff like that. So it's cool that people still are starting to watch this even later on. It really has stood the test of time. Very few times when you're watching it do you go, oh, this is an old show. It seems like it could be made today. Yeah. And sometimes when we, like we're going back about the um, remaking of the show, referencing that again, um, sometimes when we remake stuff, we go, oh, we can fix that or, oh, we can do better with the graphics. And it sometimes takes away from the show. So I think Quantum Leap is pretty awesome the way it is. The important part is the writing and the acting. And I think both of them are spot on. I definitely agree. Thank you so much for the feedback. There are many ways to leave us feedback. You can check out our website at quantumleappodcast.com. You can send us MP3s or emails to quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. We got up to 1,701 listeners. It's like a Star Trek reference. Exactly. We are on Twitter at quantumleappod. We also have an Instagram at Quantum Leap Podcast. And we have a voicemail line, which is 707-847-6682. And we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash Quantum Leap Podcast. And thank you always to our patrons, Tom and Donald. And we have a special announcement. We have a second winner for our newsletter giveaway. Now you can still sign up for our newsletter. It's quantumleappodcast.com slash newsletter. And hopefully we'll be getting those newsletters out soon. But what does the winner get? The winner will receive a Quantum Leap Laserdisc with the episodes The Color of Truth and Kamikaze Kid. So are you ready to hear who the winner is? Yes. Who's our second winner in our Laserdisc newsletter giveaway? The winner is Martin Totten. Congratulations, Martin. I'm really excited about this because you've been sending in feedback for a really long time. Yeah, it's very cool. Very cool. So we will get that Laserdisc out to you very soon, Martin. Congratulations. Now I think it's time for Hayden's segment. My favorite educational part of the Quantum Leap podcast. In the 21st century, one of the largest markets in the world is the video game market. And these days, it seems that every new movie and television series that is released has a video game to go with it. So it's a real shame that Quantum Leap originally aired in the late 1980s and early 1990s, when the video game industry was still relatively new. Because the premise of the show, Quantum Leap, to inhabit the life of anyone who has lived in Sam's own lifetime, and to try and put right what once went wrong, gives infinite possibilities for a Quantum Leap video game. So in this segment, I'll be talking about the Quantum Leap video game that might have been. First and foremost, a great video game needs a great narrative. Nobody will play a game that's boring. Thankfully, with the theoretical possibility of Sam being able to be anyone and do anything, it means that it should be relatively easy for talented writers to come up with a good story for the game. I would think that the game developers would prefer to come up with short stories or missions, each of which could count as a different leap. One would hope, though, that there's an overarching story, maybe even at the project itself, 
to make the overall story flow. When coming up with gameplay ideas, one must first think about what sort of game you want it to be. In my opinion, with a television anthology such as Quantum Leap, which focuses on the numerous adventures and growth of one character, it seems obvious that the Quantum Leap game would have to be a role-playing game, RPG, in which players assume the role of characters in a fictional setting and take responsibility for acting out these roles within a narrative, either through literal acting or structured decision-making or character development. I see it as being theoretically possible to take on the roles of three different characters in the Quantum Leap game. One is obviously Sam, who, being the only one physically in that time period and situation, would have to do the physical challenges in order to complete the missions. But I see it as being possible for the player to take on the role of Al as well. Remembering that Al is a hologram, it would be possible then to explore areas in greater detail and get past obstacles to try and work out a decent course of action for Sam to take. It's even possible that in extremely difficult situations, he could try to find animals, small children, or someone mentally ill to help him and Sam. Finally, a great way that the players could build analytical and problem-solving skills could be to play as Ziggy. The way I see the gameplay going would be that when Sam leaps into a new situation, he would have to explore and talk to the people that he meets. Then Al would show up, and Sam would tell him everything that he's found out, while Al gives Sam some information about what happens to each person. Then, as Ziggy, the player would go through different possible scenarios with each of the people that Sam is possibly there to help, and try to determine the best course of action. This could also be a way to keep track of what missions Sam needs to achieve. The huge advantage to being in charge of what path the player should take is that it gives the possibility of different endings, keeping the game fresh should it be replayed from the beginning. The game would not entirely have to be analytical though. Let's remember, Sam is in prime physical condition and knows numerous forms of martial arts. So I see the game as being action-packed, with numerous situations that the player has to fight their way out of. But that's not to say there couldn't be some obstacles that require some higher order thinking to get out of as well. Some possible hiccups could be that, like in the TV series, the player might not be satisfied simply playing through the main story, the major leaps, but want 100% completion, just like sometimes Sam doesn't feel he's ready to leap because he's got other things to do. So, how could leaping to the next mission before getting 100% completion be overcome? A simple solution could just be having Al ask Sam, do you think you're ready to leap? We have to remember that in the show, sometimes Sam can sense when he's about to leap, or if he has more to do. So having the player determine if they should leap is not that much of a stretch. Of course, players may wish to come back to these previous leaps in order to finish off anything they may have missed. So having Ziggy keep a record of the missions that have been completed and what still could be done means that it's possible for the player to leap back to the previous missions at any time. This might seem a bit strange, but if you've seen Mirror Image, it'll make a bit more sense. Finally, this game could be completely unique, as it does not have to have a proper ending. With the new feature of adding downloadable content, DLC, to games, or even something similar to Disney Infinity, where new levels, characters and features can be bought for the game just by buying a new toy, it's theoretically possible that the developers could keep adding new leaps to the game to be downloaded or purchased, thereby making a huge game that doesn't have any ending in sight. Even if a player 
chooses not to purchase any add-ons to the game, ending on a cliffhanger can still be very satisfying. Ending on a cliffhanger can still feel very satisfying as it makes you feel like Sam is still out there, still putting right what once went wrong. So in my mind, any Quantum Leap game would have to be an RPG with each leap containing a main mission and side missions, which may require analytical thinking as well as some butt-kicking to get through. Being able to play as Sam, Al and Ziggy would make the game much larger, with different possible modes of gameplay for each character. Finally, there is no reason why the game should ever end, as new leaps could continue to be made by the developers and made accessible to the players through use of DLC or add-on toys. It would be a great homage to a fantastic show, and with Sam theoretically able to go anywhere and do anything, that would mean there are infinite possibilities for the narrative. I hope somewhere a game developer has been listening and will try to put right the wrong that there has not yet ever been a Quantum Leap video game being made. a great segment from Hayden. There should be a Quantum Leap video game. There was a Back to the Future video game, which I really enjoyed. That came out a little while ago. But I think uh, people would buy a Quantum Leap video game. I know there's that app, but I don't think it counts because it's not really like actual Quantum Leap. Yeah, not official. I would want something with the voices of. You would want one of those storybook ones where you like choose your own adventure. Those are my favorite kind of video games. Watch 10 minutes of video and then pick right or left. Mm -hmm. Or the YouTube (laughs) playthroughs i just watch them play the video games (laughs) maybe Uh, that's where renny gets it big surprise but yeah i like games like that like star trek borg and there was a x files one where you just pretty much choose your own adventure any more than that it gets too complicated for me but that would be great i might even if it was like a button mashing game with quantum leap i don't don't think it would be like mortal Kombat, where you're like just push all the buttons together (laughs) i don't think i'd like that if it was quantum leap and fighting (laughs) i think the only thing you could do would be like a story type of game story they have so many of those now. I'm sure it'll eventually happen because they have those for cartoons. And I'm sure if the right person gets bored and <laughs> wants to create something like that, maybe one of our listeners should get on that. I'm sure we have many talented listeners who could create a Quantum Leap video game and present the idea. All they have to do is contact the right person at Universal that is interested in doing more Quantum Leap projects. There might be someone. You don't know. Okay. Heather, do you have any news? I don't really have any news, but did everyone else see that David Feldman got an autographed Scott Bakula photo? For his birthday. Can we all just be a little bit jealous for a second? <laughs> and it wasn't, like, it wasn't like from eBay or anything. Scott Bakula sent it to him. Yeah, freaking cool, man. I'm so jealous. My birthday's coming up in months and months. Hey, Albie's birthday's in June, so if uh, anybody wants to make that a habit. <laughs> anybody out there knows how to get in contact with... Hmm. hmm. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Scott, so my birthday's in June. <laughs> my birthday's in June. Okay. So how did this all come about? So basically, I think David posted it in the Facebook group, if you guys want to really check out the picture and the story. But David's stepdad is a firefighter, and he went for a call... Because, well, I guess her carbon monoxide detector was going off. The woman's carbon monoxide detector was going off. So they went to check it out. Everything was okay. But he noticed that there was a lot of Scott Bakula posters around. And he had to ask. And it was Scott Bakula's mom. Very small world. 
Right. So he mentioned that David was a big fan of Quantum Leap. And I guess they were talking about it for a little while. And she offered to call Scott and ask if he could send David an autograph. So he did. And that was like a birthday present for David Feldman. It came at a great time. And so David has an autographed picture of Scott. It looked like a from the NCIS set. It says all the best and good luck, Scott Bakula. So Wow. I know. He doesn't normally collect memorabilia or autographs, but this is very special to him. And it's amazing that he got it on his birthday and from his stepdad and from Scott Bakula. (laughs) How freaking cool. No matter who you are, if your mom calls you up and says, can you send a picture of yourself with an autograph to this guy? It's your mom. Yeah. But Scott would do it anyway, I think. Probably. He's a nice guy. That's pretty cool. And happy birthday, David. Happy belated birthday, David. Yes. And Again, my birthday's coming up. (laughs) Heather, do you have any trivia? I do. You can actually kind of hear a page for Margaret Thatcher when they do like a wide shot of the boat. And that's uh, the future UK prime minister. They snuck that one in there. A little ADR boo-boo that I didn't even catch. When Catherine's sister Jennifer is dragging her to the pool to meet Sam, she says he's waiting at the pool for you, but her mouthing doesn't come close to what the words are, so... So they probably changed the line after they filmed it. That happens a lot. Yeah. This one I, I didn't see. I don't know if you saw it, but in the beginning, right after Sam leaps in and Catherine kisses him, then slaps him, in the reflection, it's Sam's reflection, not the Leapy's reflection. Wow. Now we Whoops. have to watch it again. I know. I know there was some inconsistencies with trash on Sam at the end. So those are a little inconsistencies. Oh, There's like also stuff on his back and then not on his back. Yeah. And also when um by the pool her lipstick was perfect than it wasn't than it was and i think when you're smeared with garbage unless each individual piece is glued on i think that's going to happen yeah unless someone has their iphone like taking pictures they, oh. they used a polaroid camera back then for continuity yeah they might still i don't know probably not probably iphone now. probably a little iPhone. Bit easier. <laughs> yeah i think it would be less expensive to <laughs> have your iphone that you already have in your pocket anyway i need more polaroid film did you know that there were f- you probably do that there are five Star Trek alumni in this episode? I so did. <laughs> but but read on, yes. Okay, so obviously Scott Bakula was in Enterprise. Amazing show if you haven't watched it. Please get it on Blu-ray. And Dean Stockwell was in an episode of Enterprise. Beverly Leach was in Star Trek Voyager, the episode Nightingale. James Harper was in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, The Passenger. And also J.G. Hertzler played a record eight different characters across Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the direct-to-video Star Trek of Gods and Men. Yes, and uh, he's got one of those great voices, same as James Harper. As soon as I heard the character Weathers Farrington through the door, the first time I watched this episode recently, I was like, I know that voice. He's awesome. And then, of course, when he came through the door, I recognized him. Well, he also did voices on Star Trek video games, too, and he wrote a Star Trek novel. Really? I didn't know he wrote a novel. I'll have to add that to my nook. Here's another odd fact. Beverly Leach is only nine years younger than her on-screen father and only 11 years younger than her on-screen mother. Her mother didn't look old enough to have her as a daughter. Right. Money. They're rich. Money will keep you looking young. (laughs) Well, here's something that's about Sam and Al in the episode. We find out that Sam knows French. We find out that Al did briefly find true love and he doesn't want to talk about it. It's kind of intriguing, right? Because really, Sam was giving him kind of like crap for his lifestyle and how he just moves from woman to woman and he's a womanizer and he could never have true love. And apparently it did happen for Al once in his lifetime. Yeah. 
he doesn't want to talk about it. it kind of shrugs it off i don't know if it didn't mean anything to him or just he just didn't want to talk about it sensitive subject might be might be we discover that al is an environmentalist he was a little angry about the ocean dumping. I've heard two different things. I've heard uh, Dean Stockwell say he added that in there, and I've heard Deborah Pratt say she added that in there. So it might've, they might have got together with that one. Al and Sam both agree that mano a mano means man to man, but in fact, it means hand to hand. I always thought it meant man to man because I learned it from this episode so many years ago. So sometimes Quantum Leap does steer you in the wrong direction. I guess, but I always, <laughs> I always thought it meant man to man, mano a mano. But it means hand-to-hand. How about that? Hmm. So they got it wrong and I learned it wrong. So maybe maybe we'll just change the definition. That might be easier. What's funny, this isn't really a continuity error because Sam does this all the time with his pop culture references before the time, whether it's a saying or a movie reference. But when he says that he's going to make him an offer he can't refuse, obviously referring to the Godfather, the Godfather wouldn't come out for another 18 years. So that's probably why Vinny didn't know what he was talking about. Maybe an older Vinny the Viper is a consultant to the Godfather films. Oh, oh, oh wait, no, because he gets shot. Oh, yeah, he, he, uh, he dies after the episode. Oh, well, maybe he started using it and it spread out through the culture. Yeah, you he did know. have a couple years to, to say it. I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Heather. Albie. In the next episode of the Quantum Leap podcast. There's a woman or a dude in tights. I think they're hoes. Are they hose tights? What are they? Hose for bros? Is that a thing? If it's not, somebody just took it. I don't they? know, but if it's, a, if it's not a thing, it should be a thing. Yeah. In the next episode <laughs> of the Quantum Leap podcast, we talk about the final episode of season two of Quantum Leap. Can you believe it? We're all the way to the end of season two. Wow. We are two fifths done. Two fifths. Is that <laughs> two fifths done? <laughs> is, is that a fraction? I'm not sure. Yes. Okay, is it a proper way to say a fraction? Yeah. Okay. Or we're 40% done. It's just funny. You're like, we're two-fifths of the way there. We are. (laughs) We're getting there. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? No. How far are we? (laughs) Two-fifths. Two-fifths. Are we there yet? No, no, no. We're only two-fifths of the way there. (laughs) I wouldn't even comprehend that. (laughs) So what does that mean? In the next episode of Quantum Leap... Sam leaps into either a very ugly woman or a man dressed like a woman. And I can't say anything more because you haven't seen that episode. Are you looking forward to MIA, Heather? I am. <laughs> get it? Because I am is MIA. Oh, cool. Dude, yeah, no, <laughs> I'm really excited to watch this episode. And uh, for everyone who has seen the episode before, Heather will be watching it with the original music. I'm assuming that's what Tom Quinn yes. wanted. Yes. So per Tom Quinn's instructions, I will be listening to the original music. I'd say no less than six people through the course of this show has told me to make sure you watch it with the original music. You know, Hayden has messaged me to see if I've watched this episode yet. <laughs> Have is, you seen it? He's Have antsy. you seen it? You think? <laughs> he's excited. Calm down, Australia man. You know the best part? After we finish recording tonight, we can go watch it. By the time you hear this, I've probably already seen this episode. How crazy is that? You can't even listen to the preview. Why? Oh my goodness. It's probably better off if I don't, because then it's like I don't even know what I'm getting myself into. I've seen the leap in now five times. It's a good leap in. But he, I don't he looks know. looks good in a skirt, doesn't he? I love that he's like, not the heels again. And no, then he's like, no, he looks in the mirror woman. and he's like, oh, now I, I'm more confused. <laughs> I, I have things to talk about in the next episode. So remind me about that. That one time that you wore pink 
hose. Well, <laughs> no, we could talk about that. I'm open. I'm open and honest about everything in my life. So. Your heel collection. Yeah, um, they're hard to find in my size, but I can do it. I found a company mail order. You know what they say about men? Big feet, big heels. <laughs> Is that what they say? Mm-hmm. I think that should be the quote for the episode. No, two fifths. <laughs> We're two fifths of the way there. So cover your ears, Heather. Covering my ears. La, 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 la. Oh, no, 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 not the heels, not a woman again. No. Hey, Jake, they're on their way out. I'm going over the roof. You copy, partner? Jake, you got him? Jake! Jake! Narc. Oh, boy. I'm a man. Your partner okay, Skaggs? I don't know. He may have a concussion. Jammed on you, didn't he? What? You're not 007, Jake. We're not jam in the movies, but in real life, they have a nasty habit. I'm penciled in. Well, you're the new boy here, Sam. You just made detective. And that's your partner, Sergeant Roger Skaggs. He's a heck of an undercover detective. As a matter of fact, his arrest record is the best in San Diego. What am I here to do? Concentrate on your mantra. I just made the pusher. See if I can make a buy. Okay, they show me what's in the bag. So I'm very excited that in the next episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, we are talking about MIA and we have a special interview with Susan Dial. Awesome. Until next time, I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. And we're about to go MIA. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. Go to quantumleappodcast.com and listen to new episodes. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal TV. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get behind-the-scenes information, exclusive content, and to be notified first when new episodes are available. To support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash quantumleappodcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap Podcast, Baron Space Productions, its partners, or affiliates. Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, John Buchanan, and Juan. Researched by Juan. Contributors Hayden McQueenie and Jill Arroway. Voice talent provided by John Buchanan, Tony Fennerin, and Juan. The co-producer for the Quantum Leap Podcast is Hayden McQueenie, and Juan is the line producer. The Quantum Leap Universe and all it contains is property of Belisarius Productions and Universal TV. No infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a barren space production. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 29, Seabride. Your voice gets so deep when you do that. It's, it's, it's my radio voice. It's my internet audio voice. It's my podcast voice. You're in a world. In a world <laughs> where you leap into a cruise ship. Someone smacks you, kisses you, and then you get punched out by your dad. Testy things for you. Can you hear me now? Quantum Leap Podcast, episode 29. Podcast. Section B. So he he accomplished his mission. So he accomplished his mission. And if you haven't seen the rest of the series, you should cover your ears as well. Or fast forward, which would be more efficient. Well, if you cover your ears and you have ear pods on, it's probably not going to (laughs) help. So maybe fast forward through this email. Dude, we did it.
Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a quick one, but we got two interviews, so it's good. A quick one. It's only going to be four hours long four this hours. time. I don't speak French. I just speak with a French accent. <laughs>